This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster. It's read by Elizabeth Klett, and we will be discussing it afterwards. It runs one hour, 20 minutes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Klett The Machine Stops by E. M. Forster Part 1 The Airship Imagine, if you can, a small room, hexagonal in shape, like the cell of a bee. It is lighted neither by window nor by lamp, yet it is filled with a soft radiance. There are no apertures for ventilation, yet the air is fresh. There are no musical instruments, and yet at the moment that my meditation opens, this room is throbbing with melodious sounds. An armchair is in the centre, by its side a reading desk. That is all the furniture. And in the armchair there sits a swaddled lump of flesh, a woman, about five feet high, with a face as white as a fungus. It is to her that the little room belongs. An electric bell rang. The woman touched a switch, and the music was silent. I suppose I must see who it is, she thought, and set her chair in motion. The chair, like the music, was worked by machinery, and it rolled her to the other side of the room, where the bell still rang importunately. "'Who is it?' she called. Her voice was irritable, for she had been interrupted often since the music began. She knew several thousand people. In certain directions human intercourse had advanced enormously. But when she listened to the receiver, her white face wrinkled into smiles— and she said, "'Very well, let us talk. I will isolate myself. I do not expect anything important will happen for the next five minutes, for I can give you fully five minutes, Kuno. Then I must deliver my lecture on music during the Australian period.' She touched the isolation knob, so that no one else could speak to her. Then she touched the lighting apparatus, and the little room was plunged into darkness." "'Be quick!' she called, her irritation returning. "'Be quick, Kuno! Here I am in the dark, wasting my time!' But it was fully fifteen seconds before the round plate that she held in her hands began to glow. A faint blue light shot across it, darkening to purple, and presently she could see the image of her son, who lived on the other side of the earth, and he could see her. "'Kuno, how slow you are!' He smiled gravely. "'I really believe you enjoy dawdling.' "'I have called you before, mother, but you were always busy or isolated. "'I have something particular to say. "'What is it, dearest boy? Be quick. "'Why could you not send it by pneumatic post?' "'Because I prefer saying such a thing. "'I want—' "'Well?' "'I want you to come and see me.' 
Vashti watched his face in the blue plate. "'But I can see you!' she exclaimed. "'What more do you want?' "'I want to see you not through the machine,' said Kuno. "'I want to speak to you not through the wearisome machine.' "'Oh, hush!' said his mother, vaguely shocked. "'You mustn't say anything against the machine.' "'Why not?' "'One mustn't.' "'You talk as if a god had made the machine,' cried the other. "'I believe that you pray to it when you are unhappy. "'Men made it, do not forget that. "'Great men, but men. "'The machine is much, but it is not everything. "'I see something like you in this plate, but I do not see you. "'I hear something like you through this telephone, but I do not hear you.' That is why I want you to come. Pay me a visit so that we can meet face to face and talk about the hopes that are in my mind. She replied that she could scarcely spare the time for a visit. The airship barely takes two days to fly between me and you. I dislike airships. Why? I dislike seeing the horrible brown earth and the sea and the stars when it is dark. I get no ideas in an airship. I do not get them anywhere else. What kind of ideas can the air give you? He paused for an instant. Do you not know four big stars that form an oblong, and three stars close together in the middle of the oblong, and hanging from these stars three other stars? No, I do not. I dislike the stars. But did they give you an idea? How interesting! Tell me. I had an idea that they were like a man. I do not understand. The four big stars are the man's shoulders and his knees. The three stars in the middle are like the belts that men once wore, and the three stars hanging are like a sword. A sword? Men carried swords about with them, to kill animals and other men. It does not strike me as a very good idea, but it is certainly original. When did it come to you first? In the airship. He broke off, and she fancied that he looked sad. She could not be sure, for the machine did not transmit nuances of expression. It only gave a general idea of people— an idea that was good enough for all practical purposes, Vashti thought. The imponderable bloom, declared by a discredited philosophy to be the actual essence of intercourse, was rightly ignored by the machine, just as the imponderable bloom of the grape was ignored by the manufacturers of artificial fruit. Something good enough had long since been accepted by our race. The truth is, he continued, that I want to see these stars again. They are curious stars. I want to see them not from the airship, but from the surface of the earth, as our ancestors did thousands of years ago. I want to visit the surface of the earth. She was shocked again. Mother, you must come, if only to explain to me what is the harm of visiting the surface of the earth. No harm, she replied, controlling herself, but no advantage. The surface of the earth is only dust and mud. No advantage. 
the surface of the earth is only dust and mud, no life remains on it, and you would need a respirator, or the cold of the outer air would kill you. One dies immediately in the outer air. I know, of course, I shall take all precautions. And besides— Well— she considered and chose her words with care. Her son had a queer temper, and she wished to dissuade him from the expedition. "'It is contrary to the spirit of the age,' she asserted. "'Do you mean by that, contrary to the machine?' "'In a sense, but—his image in the blue plate faded. "'Kuno!' he had isolated himself. For a moment Vashti felt lonely. Then she generated the light, and the sight of her room, flooded with radiance and studded with electric buttons, revived her. There were buttons and switches everywhere, buttons to call for food, for music, for clothing. There was the hot bath button, by pressure of which a basin of imitation marble rose out of the floor, filled to the brim with a warm, deodorized liquid. There was the cold bath button. There was the button that produced literature. And there were, of course, the buttons by which she communicated with her friends. The room, though it contained nothing, was in touch with all that she cared for in the world. Vashti's next move was to turn off the isolation switch, and all the accumulations of the last three minutes burst upon her. The room was filled with the noise of bells and speaking tubes. What was the new food like? Could she recommend it? Has she had any ideas lately? Might one tell her one's own ideas? Would she make an engagement to visit the public nurseries at an early date, say this day month? To most of these questions she replied with irritation, a growing quality in that accelerated age. She said that the new food was horrible, that she could not visit the public nurseries through press of engagements, that she had no ideas of her own, but had just been told one that four stars and three in the middle were like a man. She doubted there was much in it. Then she switched off her correspondence, for it was time to deliver her lecture on Australian music. The clumsy system of public gatherings had been long since abandoned. Neither Vashti nor her audience stirred from their rooms. Seated in her armchair she spoke, while they in their armchairs heard her, fairly well, and saw her, fairly well. She opened with a humorous account of music in the pre-Mongolian epoch, and went on to describe the great outburst of song that followed the Chinese conquest. Remote and primeval as were the methods of Yisan So and the Brisbane School, she yet felt, she said, that study of them might repay the musicians of today. They had freshness. They had, above all, ideas. Her lecture, which lasted ten minutes, was well received, and at its conclusion she and many of her audience listened to a lecture on the sea. There were ideas to be got from the sea. The speaker had donned a respirator and visited it lately. Then she fed, talked to many friends, had a bath, talked again, and summoned her bed. The bed was not to her liking. It was too large, and she had a feeling for a small bed. Complaint was useless, for beds were of the same dimension all over the world, and to have had an alternative size would have involved vast alterations in the machine. Vashti isolated herself. It was necessary, for neither day nor night existed under the ground, 
and reviewed all that had happened since she had summoned the bed last. Ideas? Scarcely any. Events? Was Kuno's invitation an event? By her side, on the little reading-desk, was a survival from the ages of litter. One book. This was the book of the machine. In it were instructions against every possible contingency. If she was hot or cold, or dyspeptic, or at a loss for a word, she went to the book, and it told her which button to press. The Central Committee published it. In accordance with a growing habit, it was richly bound. Sitting up in the bed, she took it reverently in her hands. She glanced round the glowing room, as if someone might be watching her. Then, half ashamed, half joyful, she murmured, "'Oh, machine! Oh, machine!' and raised the volume to her lips. Thrice she kissed it, thrice inclined her head, thrice she felt the delirium of acquiescence. Her ritual performed, she turned to page 1367, which gave the times of the departure of the airships from the island in the southern hemisphere, under whose soil she lived, to the island in the northern hemisphere, where under lived her son. She thought, I have not the time. She made the room dark and slept. She awoke and made the room light. She ate and exchanged ideas with her friends, and listened to music and attended lectures. She made the room dark and slept. Above her, beneath her, and around her, the machine hummed eternally. She did not notice the noise, for she had been born with it in her ears. The earth, carrying her, hummed as it sped through silence, turning her now to the invisible sun, now to the invisible stars. She awoke and made the room light. Kuno, I will not talk to you, he answered, until you come. Have you been on the surface of the earth since we spoke last? His image faded. Again she consulted the book. She became very nervous and lay back in her chair, palpitating. Think of her as without teeth or hair. Presently she directed the chair to the wall and pressed an unfamiliar button. The wall swung apart slowly. Through the opening she saw a tunnel that curved slightly, so that its goal was not visible. Should she go to see her son, here was the beginning of the journey. Of course she knew all about the communication system. There was nothing mysterious in it. She would summon a car, and it would fly with her down the tunnel, until it reached the lift that communicated with the airship station. The system had been in use for many, many years, long before the universal establishment of the machine. And, of course, she had studied the civilization that had immediately preceded her own, the civilization that had mistaken the functions of the system, and had used it for bringing people to things, instead of for bringing things to people. Those funny old days, when men went for change of air, instead of changing the air in their rooms. And yet she was frightened of the tunnel. She had not seen it since her last child was born. It curved, but not quite as she remembered. It was brilliant, but not quite as brilliant as a lecturer had suggested. Vashti was seized with the terrors of direct experience. She shrank back into the room, and the wall closed up again. Kuno, she said, I cannot come to see you. I am not well. 
Immediately an enormous apparatus fell on to her out of the ceiling, a thermometer was automatically laid upon her heart. She lay powerless. Cool pads soothed her forehead. Kuno had telegraphed to her doctor. So the human passion still blundered up and down in the machine. Vashti drank the medicine that the doctor projected into her mouth, and the machinery retired into the ceiling. The voice of Kuno was heard asking how she felt. Better. Then, with irritation, But why do you not come to me instead? Because I cannot leave this place. Why? Because any moment something tremendous may happen. Have you been on the surface of the earth yet? Not yet. Then what is it? I will not tell you through the machine. She resumed her life. But she thought of Kuno as a baby, his birth, his removal to the public nurseries, her own visit to him there, his visits to her, visits which stopped when the machine had assigned him a room on the other side of the earth. Parents, duties of, said the book of the machine, cease at the moment of birth. P. 422-327483. True, but there was something special about Kuno. Indeed, there had been something special about all her children. And after all, she must brave the journey if he desired it. And something tremendous might happen. What did that mean? The nonsense of a youthful man, no doubt. But she must go. Again she pressed the unfamiliar button. Again the wall swung back, and she saw the tunnel that curves out of sight. Clasping the book, she rose, tottered on to the platform, and summoned the car. Her room closed behind her. The journey to the northern hemisphere had begun. Of course it was perfectly easy. The car approached, and in it she found armchairs exactly like her own. When she signaled, it stopped, and she tottered into the lift. One other passenger was in the lift, the first fellow-creature she had seen face to face for months. Few travelled in these days, for thanks to the advance of science, the earth was exactly alike all over. Rapid intercourse, from which the previous civilization had hoped so much, had ended by defeating itself. What was the good of going to Peking, when it was just like Shrewsbury? Why return to Shrewsbury, when it would be all like Peking? Men seldom moved their bodies. All unrest was concentrated in the soul. The airship service was a relic from the former age. It was kept up, because it was easier to keep it up than to stop it or to diminish it. But it now far exceeded the wants of the population. Vessel after vessel would rise from the vomitories of Rye or of Christchurch, I use the antique names, would sail into the crowded sky, and would draw up at the wharves of the south, empty. So nicely adjusted was the system, so independent of meteorology, that the sky, whether calm or cloudy, resembled a vast kaleidoscope whereon the same patterns periodically recurred. The ship on which Vashti sailed started now at sunset, now at dawn. But always, as it passed above Reyes, it would neighbour the ship that served between Helsingfors and the Brazils, and every third time it surmounted the Alps, the fleet of Palermo would cross its track behind. Night and day, wind and storm, tide and earthquake impeded man no longer. He had harnessed Leviathan. 
All the old literature, with its praise of nature and its fear of nature, rang false as the prattle of a child. Yet as Vashti saw the vast flank of the ship, stained with exposure to the outer air, her horror of direct experience returned. It was not quite like the airship in the cinematophote. For one thing it smelt, not strongly or unpleasantly, but it did smell, and with her eyes shut she should have known that a new thing was close to her. Then she had to walk to it from the lift, had to submit to glances from the other passengers. The man in front dropped his book. No great matter, but it disquieted them all. In the rooms, if the book was dropped, the floor raised it mechanically. But the gangway to the airship was not so prepared, and the sacred volume lay motionless. They stopped. The thing was unforeseen. And the man, instead of picking up his property, felt the muscles of his arm to see how they had failed him. Then someone actually said, with direct utterance, "'We shall be late,' and they trooped on board, Vashti treading on the pages as she did so. Inside her anxiety increased. The arrangements were old-fashioned and rough. There was even a female attendant, to whom she would have to announce her wants during the voyage. Of course a revolving platform ran the length of the boat, but she was expected to walk from it to her cabin. Some cabins were better than others, and she did not get the best. She thought the attendant had been unfair, and spasms of rage shook her. The glass valves had closed, she could not go back. She saw at the end of the vestibule the lift in which she had ascended going quietly up and down, empty. Beneath these corridors of shining tiles were rooms, tier below tier, reaching far into the earth, and in each room there sat a human being, eating, sleeping, or producing ideas. And buried deep in the hive was her own room. Vashti was afraid. "'Oh, machine!' she murmured, and caressed her book, and was comforted. Then the sides of the vestibule seemed to melt together, as do the passages that we see in dreams. The lift vanished, the book that had been dropped slid to the left and vanished, polished tiles rushed by like a stream of water, there was a slight jar, and the airship, issuing from its tunnel, soared above the waters of a tropical ocean. It was night. For a moment she saw the coast of Sumatra edged by the phosphorescence of waves, and crowned by lighthouses, still sending forth their disregarded beams. These also vanished, and only the stars distracted her. They were not motionless, but swayed to and fro above her head, thronging out of one skylight into another, as if the universe and not the airship was careening. And, as often happens on clear nights, they seemed now to be in perspective, now on a plane, now piled tier beyond tier into the infinite heavens, now concealing infinity, a roof limiting forever the visions of men. In either case they seemed intolerable. "'Are we to travel in the dark?' called the passengers angrily, and the attendant, who had been careless, generated the light and pulled down the blinds of pliable metal. When the airships had been built, the desire to look direct at things still lingered in the world. Hence the extraordinary number of skylights and windows, and the proportionate discomfort to those who were civilized and refined. 
Even in Vashti's cabin one star peeped through a flaw in the blind, and after a few hours' uneasy slumber she was disturbed by an unfamiliar glow, which was the dawn. Quick as the ship had sped westwards, the earth had rolled eastwards quicker still, and had dragged back Vashti and her companions towards the sun. Science could prolong the night, but only for a little, and those high hopes of neutralizing the earth's diurnal revolution had passed, together with hopes that were possibly higher. To keep pace with the sun, or even to outstrip it, had been the aim of the civilization preceding this. Racing aeroplanes had been built for the purpose, capable of enormous speed, and steered by the greatest intellects of the epoch. Round the globe they went, round and round, westward, westward, round and round, amidst humanity's applause. In vain. The globe went eastward quicker still, horrible accidents occurred, and the committee of the machine, at the time rising into prominence, declared the pursuit illegal, unmechanical, and punishable by homelessness. Of homelessness more will be said later. Doubtless the committee was right. Yet the attempt to defeat the sun aroused the last common interest that our race experienced about the heavenly bodies, or indeed about anything. It was the last time that men were compacted by thinking of a power outside the world. The sun had conquered, yet it was the end of his spiritual dominion. Dawn, midday, twilight, the zodiacal path, touched neither men's lives nor their hearts, and science retreated into the ground to concentrate herself upon problems that she was certain of solving. So, when Vashti found her cabin invaded by a rosy finger of light, she was annoyed, and tried to adjust the blind. But the blind flew up altogether, and she saw through the skylight small pink clouds, swaying against a background of blue, and as the sun crept higher, its radiance entered direct, brimming down the wall like a golden sea. It rose and fell with the airship's motion, just as waves rise and fall, but it advanced steadily, as a tide advances. Unless she was careful, it would strike her face. A spasm of horror shook her, and she rang for the attendant. The attendant, too, was horrified, but she could do nothing. It was not her place to mend the blind. She could only suggest that the lady should change her cabin, which she accordingly prepared to do. People were almost exactly alike all over the world, but the attendant of the airship, perhaps owing to her exceptional duties, had grown a little out of the common. She had often to address passengers with direct speech, and this had given her a certain roughness and originality of manner. When Vashti swerved away from the sunbeams with a cry, she behaved barbarically, she put out her hand to steady her. "'How dare you!' exclaimed the passenger. "'You forget yourself!' The woman was confused, and apologized for not having let her fall. People never touched one another. The custom had become obsolete, owing to the machine. "'Where are we now?' asked Vashti haughtily. "'We are over Asia,' said the attendant, anxious to be polite." Asia? Oh, you must excuse my common way of speaking. I have got into the habit of calling places over which I pass by their unmechanical names. Oh, I remember Asia. The Mongols came from it. Beneath us, in the open air, stood a city that was once called Simla. 
Have you ever heard of the Mongols and of the Brisbane school? No. Brisbane also stood in the open air. Those mountains to the right, let me show you them. She pushed back a metal blind. The main chain of the Himalayas was revealed. They were once called the roof of the world, those mountains. You must remember that before the dawn of civilization they seemed to be an impenetrable wall that touched the stars. It was supposed that no one but the gods could exist above their summits. How we have advanced, thanks to the machine. How we have advanced, thanks to the machine, said Vashti. How we have advanced, thanks to the machine, echoed the passenger, who had dropped his book the night before, and who was standing in the passage. And that white stuff in the cracks, what is it? I have forgotten its name. Cover the window, please. These mountains give me no ideas. The northern aspect of the Himalayas was in deep shadow. On the Indian slope the sun had just prevailed. The forests had been destroyed during the literature epoch for the purpose of making newspaper pulp, but the snows were awakening to their morning glory, and clouds still hung on the breasts of Kinchinjunga. In the plain were seen the ruins of cities, with diminished rivers creeping by their walls, and by the sides of these were sometimes the signs of vomitories, marking the cities of to-day. Over the whole prospect airships rushed, crossing the intercrossing with incredible aplomb, and rising nonchalantly when they desired to escape the perturbations of the lower atmosphere, and to traverse the roof of the world. "'We have indeed advanced, thanks to the machine,' repeated the attendant, and hid the Himalayas behind a metal blind." The day dragged wearily forward. The passengers sat each in his cabin, avoiding one another with an almost physical repulsion, and longing to be once more under the surface of the earth. There were eight or ten of them, mostly young males, sent out from the public nurseries to inhabit the rooms of those who had died in various parts of the earth. The man who had dropped his book was on the homeward journey. He had been sent to Sumatra for the purpose of propagating the race. Vashti alone was travelling by her private will. At midday she took a second glance at the earth. The airship was crossing another range of mountains, but she could see little, owing to clouds. Masses of black rock hovered below her, and merged indistinctly into grey. Their shapes were fantastic. One of them resembled a prostrate man. "'No ideas here,' murmured Vashti, and hid the Caucasus behind a metal blind. In the evening she looked again. They were crossing a golden sea, in which lay many small islands and one peninsula. She repeated, No ideas here, and hid Greece behind a metal blind. Part Two, The Mending Apparatus By a vestibule, by a lift, by a tubular railway, by a platform, by a sliding door, by reversing all the steps of her departure, did Vashti arrive at her son's room, which exactly resembled her own. She might well declare that the visit was superfluous. The buttons, the knobs, the reading-desk with the book, the temperature, the atmosphere, the illumination, all were exactly the same. And if Kuno himself, flesh of her flesh, stood close beside her at last, what profit was there in that? She was too well-bred to shake him by the hand. 
Averting her eyes, she spoke as follows. "'Here I am. I have had the most terrible journey, and greatly retarded the development of my soul. It is not worth it, Kuno, it is not worth it. My time is too precious. The sunlight almost touched me, and I have met with the rudest people. I can only stop a few minutes. Say what you want to say, and then I must return.' "'I have been threatened with homelessness,' said Kuno. She looked at him now. "'I have been threatened with homelessness, and I could not tell you such a thing through the machine. Homelessness means death. The victim is exposed to the air, which kills him. I have been outside since I spoke to you last. The tremendous thing has happened, and they have discovered me. "'But why shouldn't you go outside?' she exclaimed. It is perfectly legal, perfectly mechanical, to visit the surface of the earth. I have lately been to a lecture on the sea. There is no objection to that. One simply summons a respirator and gets an aggression permit. It is not the kind of thing that spiritually-minded people do, and I begged you not to do it, but there is no legal objection to it. I did not get an aggression permit. Then how did you get out?' I found out a way of my own. The phrase conveyed no meaning to her, and he had to repeat it. "'A way of your own?' she whispered. "'But that would be wrong!' "'Why?' The question shocked her beyond measure. "'You are beginning to worship the machine,' he said coldly. "'You think it irreligious of me to have found out a way of my own. It was just what the committee thought.' when they threatened me with homelessness. At this she grew angry. "'I worship nothing!' she cried. "'I am most advanced. I don't think you irreligious, for there is no such thing as religion left. All the fear and the superstition that existed once have been destroyed by the machine. I only meant that to find out a way of your own was—besides, there is no new way out. So it is always supposed.' except through the vomitories, for which one must have an aggression permit. It is impossible to get out. The book says so. Well, the book's wrong, for I have been out on my feet. For Kuno was possessed of a certain physical strength. By these days it was a demerit to be muscular. Each infant was examined at birth, and all who promised undue strength were destroyed. Humanitarians may protest— but it would have been no true kindness to let an athlete live. He would never have been happy in that state of life to which the machine had called him. He would have yearned for trees to climb, rivers to bathe in, meadows and hills against which he might measure his body. Man must be adapted to his surroundings, must he not? In the dawn of the world our weaklings must be exposed on Mount Tegetus. In its twilight our strong will suffer euthanasia, that the machine may progress— that the machine may progress, that the machine may progress eternally. You know that we have lost the sense of space. We say space is annihilated, but we have annihilated not space, but the sense thereof. We have lost a part of ourselves. I determined to recover it, and I began by walking up and down the platform of the railway outside my room. Up and down, until I was tired, and so did recapture the meaning of near and far. 
Near is a place to which I can get quickly on my feet, not a place to which the train or the airship will take me quickly. Far is a place to which I cannot get quickly on my feet. The vomitory is far, though I could be there in thirty-eight seconds by summoning the train. Man is the measure. That was my first lesson. Man's feet are the measure for distance, his hands are the measure for ownership, his body is the measure for all that is lovable and desirable and strong. Then I went further. It was then that I called to you for the first time, and you would not come. This city, as you know, is built deep beneath the surface of the earth, with only the vomitories protruding. Having paced the platform outside my own room, I took the lift to the next platform and paced that also, and so with each in turn, until I came to the topmost, above which begins the earth. All the platforms were exactly alike, and all that I gained by visiting them was to develop my sense of space and my muscles. I think I should have been content with this. It is not a little thing. But as I walked and brooded, it occurred to me that our cities had been built in the days when men still breathed the outer air, and that there had been ventilation shafts for the workmen. I could think of nothing but these ventilation shafts. Had they been destroyed by all the food tubes and medicine tubes and music tubes that the machine has evolved lately? Or did traces of them remain? One thing was certain. If I came upon them anywhere, it would be in the railway tunnels of the topmost story. Everywhere else all space was accounted for. I am telling my story quickly, but don't think that I was not a coward, or that your answers never depressed me. It is not the proper thing, it is not mechanical, it is not decent to walk along a railway tunnel. I did not fear that I might tread upon a live rail and be killed. I feared something far more intangible, doing what was not contemplated by the machine. Then I said to myself, Man is the measure, and I went, and after many visits I found an opening. The tunnels, of course, were lighted. Everything is light, artificial light. Darkness is the exception. So when I saw a black gap in the tiles, I knew that it was an exception, and rejoiced. I put in my arm, I could put in no more at first, and waved it round and round in ecstasy. I loosened another tile and put in my head, and shouted into the darkness, I am coming, I shall do it yet! And my voice reverberated down endless passages. I seemed to hear the spirits of those dead workmen who returned each evening to the starlight and to their wives, and all the generations who had lived in the open air called back to me, You will do it yet! You are coming! He paused, and absurd as he was, his last words moved her. For Kuno had lately asked to be a father, and his request had been refused by the committee. His was not a type that the machine desired to hand on. Then a train passed. It brushed by me, but I thrust my head and arms into the hole. I had done enough for one day, so I crawled back to the platform, went down in the lift, and summoned my bed. Ah, what dreams! And again I called you, and again you refused. She shook her head and said, Don't! Don't talk of these terrible things. You make me miserable. You are throwing civilization away. But I had got back the sense of space, and a man cannot rest then. 
I determined to get in at the hole and climb the shaft. And so I exercised my arms. Day after day I went through ridiculous movements until my flesh ached, and I could hang by my hands and hold the pillow of my bed outstretched for many minutes. Then I summoned a respirator, and started. It was easy at first. The mortar had somehow rotted, and I soon pushed some more tiles in, and clambered after them into the darkness, and the spirits of the dead comforted me. I don't know what I mean by that. I just say what I felt. I felt for the first time that a protest had been lodged against corruption, and that even as the dead were comforting me, so I was comforting the unborn. I felt that humanity existed, and that it existed without clothes. How can I possibly explain this? It was naked. Humanity seemed naked. And all these tubes and buttons and machineries neither came into the world with us, nor will they follow us out, nor do they matter supremely while we are here. Had I been strong, I would have torn off every garment I had and gone out into the open air unswaddled. But this is not for me, nor perhaps for my generation. I climbed with my respirator and my hygienic clothes and my dietetic tabloids. Better thus than not at all. There was a ladder, made of some primeval metal. The light from the railway fell upon its lowest rungs, and I saw that it led straight upwards out of the rubble at the bottom of the shaft. Perhaps our ancestors ran up and down it a dozen times daily, in their building. As I climbed, the rough edges cut through my gloves so that my hands bled. The light helped me for a little, and then came darkness, and worse still silence which pierced my ears like a sword. The machine hums. Did you know that? Its hum penetrates our blood and may even guide our thoughts. Who knows? I was getting beyond its power. Then I thought, this silence means that I am doing wrong. But I heard voices in the silence, and again they strengthened me. He laughed. I had need of them. The next moment I cracked my head against something. She sighed. I had reached one of those pneumatic stoppers that defend us from the outer air. You may have noticed them from the airship. Pitch dark, my feet on the rungs of an invisible ladder, my hands cut. I cannot explain how I lived through this part, but the voices still comforted me, and I felt for fastenings. The stopper, I suppose, was about eight feet across. I passed my hand over it as far as I could reach. It was perfectly smooth. I felt it almost to the centre. Not quite to the centre, for my arm was too short. Then the voice said, Jump. It is worth it. There may be a handle in the centre, and you may catch hold of it and so come to us your own way. And if there is no handle, so that you may fall and are dashed to pieces, it is still worth it. You will still come to us your own way. So I jumped. There was a handle, and— He paused. Tears gathered in his mother's eyes. She knew that he was fated. If he did not die today, he would die tomorrow. There was not room for such a person in the world. And with her pity, disgust mingled. She was ashamed at having borne such a son, she who had always been so respectable and so full of ideas. Was he really the little boy to whom she had taught the use of his stops and buttons, and to whom she had given his first lessons in the book?
The very hair that disfigured his lip showed that he was reverting to some savage type. On atavism the machine can have no mercy. There was a handle, and I did catch it. I hung tranced over the darkness and heard the hum of these workings as the last whisper in a dying dream. All the things I had cared about, and all the people I had spoken to through tubes appeared infinitely little. Meanwhile the handle revolved. My weight had set something in motion, and I spun slowly, and then— I cannot describe it. I was lying with my face to the sunshine. Blood poured from my nose and ears, and I heard a tremendous roaring. The stopper, with me clinging to it, had simply been blown out of the earth, and the air that we make down here was escaping through the vent into the air above. It burst up like a fountain. I crawled back to it, for the upper air hurts, and as it were I took great sips from the edge. My respirator had flown goodness knows where, and my clothes were torn. I just lay with my lips close to the hole, and I sipped until the bleeding stopped. You can imagine nothing so curious. This hollow in the grass—I will speak of it in a minute—the sun shining into it, not brilliantly, but through marbled clouds, the peace, the nonchalance, the sense of space, and brushing my cheek the roaring fountain of our artificial air. Soon I spied my respirator, bobbing up and down in the current high above my head, and higher still were many airships. But no one ever looks out of airships, and in any case they could not have picked me up. There I was, stranded. The sun shone a little way down the shaft, and revealed the topmost rung of the ladder, but I was hopeless trying to reach it. I should have either been tossed up again by the escape, or else have fallen in and died. I could only lie on the grass, sipping and sipping, and from time to time glancing around me. I knew that I was in Wessex, for I had taken care to go to a lecture on the subject before starting. Wessex lies above the room in which we are talking now. It was once an important state. Its kings held all the southern coast, from the Andretswald to Cornwall, while the Wansdyke protected them on the north, running over the high ground. The lecturer was only concerned with the rise of Wessex, so I do not know how long it remained an international power, nor would the knowledge have assisted me. To tell the truth, I could do nothing but laugh during this part. There was I, with a pneumatic stopper by my side and a respirator bobbing over my head, imprisoned, all three of us, in a grass-grown hollow that was edged with fern. Then he grew grave again. Lucky for me that it was a hollow, for the air began to fall back into it, and to fill it as water fills a bowl. I could crawl about. Presently I stood. I breathed a mixture, in which the air that hurts predominated whenever I tried to climb the sides. This was not so bad. I had not lost my tabloids, and remained ridiculously cheerful. And as for the machine, I forgot about it altogether. My one aim now was to get to the top, where the ferns were, and to view whatever objects lay beyond. I rushed the slope. The new air was still too bitter for me, and I came rolling back, after a momentary vision of something grey. The sun grew very feeble, and I remembered that he was in Scorpio. I had been to a lecture on that, too. If the sun is in Scorpio, and you are in Wessex, it means that you must be as quick as you can, or it will get too dark. This is the first bit of useful information I have ever got from a lecture, 
and I expect it will be the last. It made me try frantically to breathe the new air, and to advance as far as I dared out of my pond. The hollow filled so slowly. At times I thought that the fountain played with less vigor. My respirator seemed to dance near the earth. The roar was decreasing. He broke off. I don't think this is interesting you. The rest will interest you even less. There are no ideas in it, and I wish that I had not troubled you to come. We are too different, mother. She told him to continue. It was evening before I climbed the bank. The sun had very nearly slipped out of the sky by this time, and I could not get a good view. You who have just crossed the roof of the world will not want to hear an account of the little hills that I saw, low, colorless hills. But to me they were living, and the turf that covered them was a skin, under which their muscles rippled, and I felt that those hills had called with incalculable force to men in the past, and that men had loved them. Now they sleep, perhaps forever. They commune with humanity in dreams. Happy the man, happy the woman who awakes the hills of Wessex, for though they sleep they will never die. His voice rose passionately. Cannot you see, cannot all you lecturers see, that it is we that are dying, and that down here the only thing that really lives is the machine? We created the machine to do our will, but we cannot make it do our will now. It has robbed us of the sense of space and of the sense of touch. It has blurred every human relation and narrowed down love to a carnal act. It has paralyzed our bodies and our wills, and now it compels us to worship it. The machine develops, but not on our lies. The machine proceeds, but not to our goal. We only exist as the blood corpuscles that course through its arteries, and if it could work without us it would let us die. Oh, I have no remedy, or at least only one, to tell men again and again that I have seen the hills of Wessex, as Alfred saw them when he overthrew the Danes. So the sun set. I forgot to mention that a belt of mist lay between my hills and other hills, and that it was the color of pearl. He broke off for the second time. "'Go on,' said his mother wearily. He shook his head. "'Go on. Nothing that you say can distress me now. I am hardened.' "'I had meant to tell you the rest, but I cannot. I know that I cannot. Good-bye.' Vashti stood irresolute. All her nerves were tingling with his blasphemies. But she was also inquisitive. "'This is unfair,' she complained. "'You have called me across the world to hear your story, and hear it I will. Tell me, as briefly as possible, for this is a disastrous waste of time, tell me how you returned to civilization.' "'Oh, that,' he said, starting. "'You would like to hear about civilization?' "'Certainly. Had I got to where my respirator fell down?' "'No, but I understand everything now.' You put on your respirator and managed to walk along the surface of the earth to a vomitory, and there your conduct was reported to the Central Committee. By no means. He passed his hand over his forehead, as if dispelling some strong impression. Then, resuming his narrative, he warmed to it again. My respirator fell about sunset. I had mentioned that the fountain seemed feebler, had I not? Yes. 
About sunset, it let the respirator fall. As I said, I had entirely forgotten about the machine, and I paid no great attention at the time, being occupied with other things. I had my pool of air into which I could dip when the outer keenness became intolerable, and which would possibly remain for days, provided that no wind sprang up to disperse it. Not until it was too late did I realize what the stoppage of the escape implied. You see, the gap in the tunnel had been mended. The mending apparatus. The mending apparatus was after me. One other warning I had, but I neglected it. The sky at night was clearer than it had been in the day, and the moon, which was about half the sky behind the sun, shone into the dell at moments quite brightly. I was in my usual place, on the boundary between the two atmospheres, when I thought I saw something dark move across the bottom of the dell and vanish into the shaft. In my folly I ran down. I bent over and listened, and I thought I heard a faint scraping noise in the depths. At this, but it was too late, I took alarm. I determined to put on my respirator and to walk right out of the dell. But my respirator had gone. I knew exactly where it had fallen, between the stopper and the aperture, and I could even feel the mark that it had made in the turf. It had gone, and I realized that something evil was at work, and I had better escape to the other air, and if I must die, die running towards the cloud that had been the color of a pearl. I never started. Out of the shaft. Oh, it is too horrible. A worm, a long white worm, had crawled out of the shaft and was gliding over the moonlit grass. I screamed. I did everything that I should not have done. I stamped upon the creature instead of flying from it, and it at once curled round the ankle. Then we fought. The worm let me run all over the dell, but edged up my leg as I ran. Help! I cried. That part is too awful. It belongs to the part that you will never know. Help! I cried. Why cannot we suffer in silence? Help! I cried. When my feet were wound together, I fell. I was dragged away from the dear ferns and the living hills, and past the great metal stopper. I can tell you this part. And I thought it might save me again if I caught hold of the handle. It also was enwrapped, it also. Oh, the whole dell was full of the things. They were searching it in all directions, they were denuding it, and the white snouts of others peeped out of the hole, ready if needed. Everything that could be moved they brought, brushwood, bundles of fern, everything, and down we all went intertwined into hell. The last things that I saw, ere the stopper closed after us, were certain stars, and I felt that a man of my sort lived in the sky. For I did fight, I fought till the very end, and it was only my head hitting against the ladder that quieted me. I woke up in this room. The worms had vanished. I was surrounded by artificial air, artificial light, artificial peace, and my friends were calling to me down speaking tombs to know whether I had come across any new ideas lately. Here his story ended. Discussion of it was impossible, and Vashti turned to go. "'It will end in homelessness,' she said quietly. "'I wish it would,' retorted Kuno. "'The machine has been most merciful. "'I prefer the mercy of God. "'By that superstitious phrase, "'do you mean that you could live in the outer air?' "'Yes.' 
Have you ever seen round the vomitories the bones of those who were extruded after the great rebellion? Yes. They were left where they perished for our edification. A few crawled away, but they perished too. Who can doubt it? And so with the homeless of our own day. The surface of the earth supports life no longer. Indeed. Ferns and a little grass may survive, but all higher forms have perished. Has any airship detected them? No. Has any lecturer dealt with them? No. Then why this obstinacy? Because I have seen them, he exploded. Seen what? Because I have seen her in the twilight, because she came to my help when I called, because she too was entangled by the worms, and luckier than I was killed by one of them piercing her throat. He was mad. Vashti departed, nor in the troubles that followed did she ever see his face again. Part Three The Homeless During the years that followed Kuno's escapade, two important developments took place in the machine. On the surface they were revolutionary, but in either case men's minds had been prepared beforehand, and they did but express tendencies that were latent already. The first of these was the abolition of respirators. Advanced thinkers, like Vashti, had always held it foolish to visit the surface of the earth. Airships might be necessary, but what was the good of going out for mere curiosity and crawling along for a mile or two in a terrestrial motor? The habit was vulgar, and perhaps faintly improper. It was unproductive of ideas, and had no connection with the habits that really mattered. So respirators were abolished, and with them, of course, the terrestrial motors, and except for a few lecturers who complained that they were debarred access to their subject matter, the development was accepted quietly. Those who still wanted to know what the earth was like had, after all, only to listen to some gramophone, or to look into some cinematovote, and even the lecturers acquiesced when they found that a lecture on the sea was none the less stimulating when compiled out of other lectures that had already been delivered on the same subject. "'Beware of first-hand ideas!' exclaimed one of the most advanced of them. First-hand ideas do not really exist. They are but the physical impressions produced by live and fear, and on this gross foundation who could erect a philosophy? Let your ideas be second-hand, and if possible tenth-hand, for then they will be far removed from that disturbing element, direct observation. Do not learn anything about this subject of mine, the French Revolution. Learn instead what I think that Enicarmen thought, Eurizen thought, Gooch thought, Ho Jung thought, Chibo Singh thought, Lafcadio Hearn thought, Carlyle thought, Mirabeau said about the French Revolution. Through the medium of these ten great minds, the blood that was shed at Paris and the windows that were broken at Versailles will be clarified to an idea which you may employ most profitably in your daily lives. But be sure that the intermediates are many and varied, for in history one authority exists to counteract another. Your reason must counteract the scepticism of Ho Yong and Enna Carmen. I myself must counteract the impetuosity of Gooch. You who listen to me are in a better position to judge about the French Revolution than I am. Your descendants will be even in a better position than you, for they will learn what you think I think, and yet another intermediate will be added to the chain. 
and in time—his voice rose—there will come a generation that had got beyond facts, beyond impressions, a generation absolutely colourless, a generation seraphically free from taint of personality, which will see the French Revolution not as it happened, nor as they would like to have had it happen, but as it would have happened, had it taken place in the days of the machine. Tremendous applause greeted this lecture, which did but voice a feeling already latent in the minds of men, a feeling that terrestrial facts must be ignored, and that the abolition of respirators was a positive gain. It was even suggested that airships should be abolished too. This was not done, because airships had somehow worked themselves into the machine system, but year by year they were used less, and mentioned less by thoughtful men. The second great development was the re-establishment of religion. This, too, had been voiced in the celebrated lecture. No one could mistake the reverent tone in which the peroration had concluded, and it awakened a responsive echo in the heart of each. Those who had long worshipped silently now began to talk. They described the strange feeling of peace that came over them when they handled the book of the machine, the pleasure that it was to repeat certain numerals out of it, however little meaning those numerals conveyed to the outward ear, the ecstasy of touching a button, however unimportant, or of ringing an electric bell, however superfluously. "'The machine,' they exclaimed, "'feeds us and clothes us and houses us. Through it we speak to one another, through it we see one another, in it we have our being. The machine is the friend of ideas and the enemy of superstition. The machine is omnipotent, eternal. Blessed is the machine.' and before long this allocution was printed on the first page of the book, and in subsequent editions the ritual swelled into a complicated system of praise and prayer. The word religion was sedulously avoided, and in theory the machine was still the creation and the implement of man. But in practice all, save a few retrogrades, worshipped it as divine. Nor was it worshipped in unity. One believer would be chiefly impressed by the blue optic plates through which he saw other believers— another by the mending apparatus, which sinful Kuno had compared to worms, another by the lifts, another by the book, and each would pray to this or to that, and ask it to intercede for him with the machine as a whole. Persecution, that was also present. It did not break out, for reasons that will be set forward shortly. But it was latent, and all who did not accept the minimum known as undenominational mechanism lived in danger of homelessness which means death, as we know. To attribute these two great developments to the Central Committee is to take a very narrow view of civilization. The Central Committee announced the developments, it is true, but they were no more the cause of them than were the kings of the imperialistic period the cause of war. Rather did they yield to some invincible pressure, which came, no one knew whither, and which, when gratified, was succeeded by some new pressure equally invincible. To such a state of affairs it is convenient to give the name of progress. No one confessed the machine was out of hand. Year by year it was served with increased efficiency and decreased intelligence. The better a man knew his own duties upon it, the less he understood the duties of his neighbour, and in all the world there was not one who understood the monster as a whole. Those master brains had perished. They had left full directions, it is true, and their successors had each of them mastered a portion of those directions. But humanity, in its desire for comfort, had overreached itself. It had exploited the riches of nature too far. 
quietly and complacently, it was sinking into decadence, and progress had come to mean the progress of the machine. As for Vashti, her life went peacefully forward until the final disaster. She made her room dark and slept, she awoke and made the room light, she lectured and attended lectures, she exchanged ideas with her innumerable friends, and believed she was growing more spiritual. At times a friend was granted euthanasia, and left his or her room for the homelessness that is beyond all human conception. Vashti did not much mind. After an unsuccessful lecture, she would sometimes ask for euthanasia herself. But the death-rate was not permitted to exceed the birth-rate, and the machine had hitherto refused it to her. The troubles began quietly, long before she was conscious of them. One day she was astonished at receiving a message from her son. They never communicated, having nothing in common, and she had only heard indirectly that he was still alive, and had been transferred from the northern hemisphere, where he had behaved so mischievously, to the southern, indeed to a room not far from her own. "'Does he want me to visit him?' she thought. "'Never again, never, and I have not the time.' No, it was madness of another kind." He refused to visualize his face upon the blue plate, and speaking out of the darkness with solemnity, said, "'The machine stops.' "'What do you say?' "'The machine is stopping. I know it. I know the signs.' She burst into a peal of laughter. He heard her and was angry, and they spoke no more. "'Can you imagine anything more absurd?' she cried to a friend. A man who was my son believes that the machine is stopping. It would be impious if it was not mad. The machine is stopping? her friend replied. What does that mean? The phrase conveys nothing to me. Nor to me. He does not refer, I suppose, to the trouble there has been lately with the music? Oh, no, of course not. Let us talk about music. Have you complained to the authorities? "'Yes, and they say it wants mending, and referred me to the committee of the mending apparatus. I complained of those curious gasping sighs that disfigure the symphonies of the Brisbane School. They sound like someone in pain. The committee of the mending apparatus say that it shall be remedied shortly.' Obscurely worried, she resumed her life. For one thing the defect in the music irritated her. For another thing she could not forget Kuno's speech— if he had known that the music was out of repair—he could not know it, for he detested music—if he had known that it was wrong, the machine stops was exactly the venomous sort of remark he would have made. Of course he had made it at a venture, but the coincidence annoyed her, and she spoke with some petulance to the committee of the mending apparatus. They replied, as before, that the defect would be set right shortly. "'Shortly, at once,' she retorted. Why should I be worried by imperfect music? Things are always put right at once. If you do not mend it at once, I shall complain to the Central Committee. No personal complaints are received by the Central Committee, the Committee of the Mending Apparatus replied. Through whom am I to make my complaint, then? Through us. I complain, then. Your complaint shall be forwarded in its turn. Have others complained? This question was unmechanical, and the committee of the mending apparatus refused to answer it. "'It is too bad!' she exclaimed to another of her friends. "'There never was such an unfortunate woman as myself. I can never be sure of my music now. 
It gets worse and worse each time I summon it. What is it? I do not know whether it is inside my head or inside the wall. Complain in either case. I have complained, and my complaint will be forwarded in its turn to the Central Committee. Time passed, and they resented the defects no longer. The defects had not been remedied, but the human tissues in that latter day had become so subservient that they readily adapted themselves to every caprice of the machine. The sigh at the crises of the Brisbane Symphony no longer irritated Vashti. She accepted it as part of the melody. The jarring noise, whether in the head or in the wall, was no longer resented by her friend. And so with the mouldy artificial fruit, so with the bath-water that began to stink, so with the defective rhymes that the poetry machine had taken to emit. All were bitterly complained of at first, and then acquiesced in and forgotten. Things went from bad to worse unchallenged. It was otherwise with the failure of the sleeping apparatus. That was a more serious stoppage. There came a day when over the whole world, in Sumatra, in Wessex, in the innumerable cities of Courland and Brazil, the beds, when summoned by their tired owners, failed to appear. It may seem a ludicrous matter, but from it we may date the collapse of humanity. The committee responsible for the failure was assailed by complainants, whom it referred, as usual, to the committee of the mending apparatus, who in its turn assured them that their complaints would be forwarded to the central committee. But the discontent grew, for mankind was not yet sufficiently adaptable to do without sleeping. "'Someone is meddling with the machine,' they began. "'Someone is trying to make himself king, to reintroduce the personal element. Punish that man with homelessness. To the rescue! Avenge the machine! Avenge the machine! War! Kill the man!' But the committee of the mending apparatus now came forward, and allayed the panic with well-chosen words. It confessed that the mending apparatus was itself in need of repair. The effect of this frank confession was admirable. "'Of course,' said a famous lecturer, he of the French Revolution, who gilded each new decay with splendour. "'Of course we shall not press our complaints now. The mending apparatus has treated us so well in the past that we all sympathise with it, and will wait patiently for its recovery. In its own good time it will resume its duties.' Meanwhile let us do without our beds, our tabloids, our other little wants. Such, I feel sure, would be the wish of the machine. Thousands of miles away his audience applauded. The machine still linked them. Under the seas, beneath the roots of the mountains, ran the wires through which they saw and heard, the enormous eyes and ears that were their heritage, and the hum of many workings clothed their thoughts in one garment of subserviency— only the old and the sick remained ungrateful, for it was rumoured that euthanasia too was out of order, and that pain had reappeared among men. It became difficult to read. A blight entered the atmosphere and dulled its luminosity. At times Vashti could scarcely see across her room. The air too was foul. Loud were the complaints, impotent the remedies, heroic the tone of the lecture as he cried, "'Courage! Courage!' What matter so long as the machine goes on? To it the darkness and the light are one. And though things improved again after a time, the old brilliancy was never recaptured, and humanity never recovered from its entrance into twilight. There was an hysterical talk of measures, of provisional dictatorship, 
and the inhabitants of Sumatra were asked to familiarize themselves with the workings of the central power station, the said power station being situated in France. But for the most part panic reigned, and men spent their strength praying to their books, tangible proofs of the machine's omnipotence. There were gradations of terror. At times came rumors of hope. The mending apparatus was almost mended. The enemies of the machine had been got under. New nerve centers were evolving which would do the work even more magnificently than before. But there came a day when, without the slightest warning, without any previous hint of feebleness, the entire communication system broke down all over the world, and the world as they understood it ended. Vashti was lecturing at the time, and her earlier remarks had been punctuated with applause. As she proceeded, the audience became silent, and at the conclusion there was no sound. Somewhat displeased, she called to a friend who was a specialist in sympathy. No sound. Doubtless the friend was sleeping. And so with the next friend whom she tried to summon, and so with the next, until she remembered Kuno's cryptic remark, the machine stops. The phrase still conveyed nothing. If eternity was stopping, it would of course be set going shortly. For example, there was still a little light and air. The atmosphere had improved a few hours previously. There was still the book, and while there was the book, there was security. Then she broke down, for with the cessation of activity came an unexpected terror. Silence. She had never known silence, and the coming of it nearly killed her. It did kill many thousands of people outright. Ever since her birth she had been surrounded by the steady hum. It was to the ear what artificial air was to the lungs, and agonizing pain shot through her head. And scarcely knowing what she did, she stumbled forward and pressed the unfamiliar button, the one that opened the door of her cell. Now the door of the cell worked on a simple hinge of its own. It was not connected with the central power station, dying far away in France. It opened, rousing immoderate hopes in Vashti, for she thought that the machine had been mended. It opened, and she saw the dim tunnel that curved far away towards freedom. One look, and then she shrank back, for the tunnel was full of people. She was almost the last in that city to have taken alarm. People at any time repelled her, and these were nightmares from her worst dreams. People were crawling about, People were screaming, whimpering, gasping for breath, touching each other, vanishing in the dark, and ever and anon being pushed off the platform onto the live rail. Some were fighting round the electric bells, trying to summon trains which could not be summoned. Others were yelling for euthanasia or for respirators, or blaspheming the machine. Others stood at the doors of their cells, fearing, like herself, either to stop in them or to leave them. And behind all the uproar was silence— the silence which is the voice of the earth and of the generations who have gone. No, it was worse than solitude. She closed the door again and sat down to wait for the end. The disintegration went on, accompanied by horrible cracks and rumbling. The valves that restrained the medical apparatus must have weakened, for it ruptured and hung hideously from the ceiling. The floor heaved and fell and flung her from the chair. A tube oozed towards her serpent fashion, and at last the final horror approached. Light began to ebb, and she knew that civilization's long day was closing. 
She whirled around, praying to be saved from this at any rate, kissing the book, pressing button after button. The uproar outside was increasing, and even penetrated the wall. Slowly the brilliancy of her cell was dimmed, the reflections faded from the metal switches. Now she could not see the reading-stand, now not the book, though she held it in her hand. Light followed the flight of sound, air was following light, and the original void returned to the cavern from which it has so long been excluded. Vashti continued to whirl, like the devotees of an earlier religion, screaming, praying, striking at the buttons with bleeding hands. It was thus that she opened her prison and escaped, escaped in the spirit, at least so it seems to me, ere my meditation closes. That she escaped in the body, I cannot perceive that. She struck by chance the switch that released the door, and the rush of foul air on her skin, the loud throbbing whispers in her ears, told her that she was facing the tunnel again, and that tremendous platform on which she had seen men fighting. They were not fighting now. Only the whispers remained, and the little whimpering groans. They were dying by hundreds out in the dark. She burst into tears. Tears answered her. They wept for humanity, those two, not for themselves. They could not bear that this should be the end. Ere silence was completed their hearts were opened, and they knew what had been important on the earth. Man, the flower of all flesh, the noblest of all creatures visible, man who had once made God in his image, and had mirrored his strength on the constellations, beautiful naked man was dying, strangled in the garments that he had woven. Century after century had he toiled, and here was his reward. Truly the garment had seemed heavenly at first, shot with colors of culture, sewn with the threads of self-denial. And heavenly it had been, so long as man could shed it at will, and live by the essence that is his soul, and the essence equally divine that is his body. The sin against the body, it was for that they wept in chief, the centuries of wrong against the muscles and the nerves, and those five portals by which we can alone apprehend, closing it over with talk of evolution, until the body was white pap, the home of ideas as colourless, last sloshy stirrings of a spirit that had grasped the stars. "'Where are you?' she sobbed. His voice in the darkness said, "'Here.' "'Is there any hope, Kuno?' "'None for us.' "'Where are you?' She crawled over the bodies of the dead. His blood spurted over her hands. "'Quicker,' he gasped. "'I am dying, but we touch, we talk, not through the machine.' He kissed her. "'We have come back to our own. We die, but we have recaptured life, as it was in Wessex when Ilfred overthrew the Danes. We know what they know outside, they who dwelt in the cloud that is the colour of a pearl.' "'But, Kuno, is it true? Are there still men on the surface of the earth? Is this—' tunnel, this poisoned darkness really not the end. He replied, I have seen them, spoken to them, loved them. They are hiding in the midst and the ferns till our civilization stops. Today they are the homeless. Tomorrow, oh, tomorrow some fool will start the machine again. Tomorrow. Never, said Kuno, never. Humanity has learnt its lesson.
As he spoke, the whole city was broken like a honeycomb. An airship had sailed in through the vomitory into a ruined wharf. It crashed downwards, exploding as it went, rending gallery after gallery with its wings of steel. For a moment they saw the nations of the dead, and before they joined them, scraps of the untainted sky. End of The Machine Stops by E. M. Forster Published 1909 Read by Elizabeth Clett September 2011 Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Eric. And I'm Mr. Jim Moon. And we're going to be talking about E. M. Forster's novella, I think it is, or novelette, called The Machine Stops, which was first published in 1909. What do you think? Is novella, no, novelette, novella? Oh. Um, ooh. Tricky. Okay. <laughs> it's, 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 I think it's a novelette, is my mm. guess. 12,000 words, I, I can never remember the... Uh, it's just over 12,000 words, I think, and I can never remember the length that they're supposed to be. I think people think that 50,000 is the minimum size to be considered a novel. So right. we have to decide which is smaller, a novelette, a novella, a novellini? Or, uh, <laughs> well, I, I think I usually go by the, the rules of, you know, what is it, the nebulas or something like that. And I think they, the short story is up to a certain length. And, and then there's no upper limit for novels. But uh, I think there's some official numbers. I'm, I'm guessing it's a novelette just based on the length. I, I, it's a long short story is basically what it is. Yes, other than its length, <laughs> what is there to say about this interesting story? Well, it's um, it's surprising to a lot of people when you mention it, and they say, "What E.M. Forster wrote some science fiction?" Because <laughs> that's it's, it's not what he's known for. Um, even though at the time he was writing, um, the genres we have today weren't so quite set in stone, and so obviously you get the likes of H.G. Wells writing S.F., which he's famous for but social realist novels and horror stories and adventure stories as well. Mm. Um, but Forster always seemed to be much more of kind of writing his dissections of English society. So this is quite a departure for him. Um, but what a departure I, it is. I think, I think it might be exactly what it is, it, it is a critique of English society, or at least where it might be going in the same way that H.G. Uh, Wells is the time machine might be that you know it's it's about the people then and it's a critique of them then although I've seen lots of very very strange theories as to what this story is critiquing I think that uh, I, I agree with you Jesse that this is a critique of its current society I think pretty much every dystopian work worth our attention is among other things uh, an address to the society in which it was written rather than the putative diegetic society in the future world or the distant land or, or what have you. Um, but I think that the connection with the time machine is uh, it's deeper and wider than you've had a chance to suggest for so far. First of all, I think that Wells is 
in the works we now call science fiction, which of course he never did because the term didn't exist for another 30 years. Um, in, the, in the works that we think of as his science fiction, he always takes a didactic approach. Uh, he ends always with some sense of uncertainty. And we have to figure out what to do about the conditions that he has highlighted. Um, in the case of the time machine and also the War of the Worlds, the problem that he sets us beyond recognizing that there's something wrong with the world we live in, if we're his contemporaries, is that there seems to be a bifurcation between the body and the spirit, or the body and the mind, if you don't want to take it in a religious uh, vein, uh, that Wells argues should not happen, that we have to find a way of combining both the material and the spiritual, or the material and the philosophical. And I think that Forster does the same thing. I think that through most of the book, or novella, novellini, novelette, short story, through, through most of it, it looks like it's telling us, boy, society is doing bad things, and let me explain them many ways. But I think at the end, when Kuno is reported to have seen that there were, in fact, people out there on the surface, and that he had met this female and she, fortunately, had died, um, but he had not. Uh, right. That's what the narrator thinks. The question is, will there be a future for humanity um, that comes from those who have managed to continue to be in touch with nature and have a body as well as having a mind? And that, that ambiguous possibility that underlies a, a didactic assertion of the necessity of finding a balance between body and spirit, I think that's here as well as it is in Wells. And I think the second way that we can understand that there is this crucial connection between those two authors, uh, I think Forster is, by the way, rife with references and uh, bringing in many, many kinds of cultural uh, high points that may be more or less high points to us today, um, is that the titles share a word. I mean, the time machine mm. is the emblem for all that Wells is doing in that book. When he first published that seven years earlier as the Chronic Argonauts, it got nowhere. And E.M. Forster calls his piece, The Machine Stops. And that's a crucial issue in the time machine. Remember, the Morlocks have the ability to continue to repair the machines. Mm -hmm. But all they are is mechanical, and so they become cannibalistic and, and eat the effete Eloi who are, who are on the surface. In the machine stops, the effete are below the surface, and right. no one is there who can repair the machine. So in a sense, the machine stops is a response to, well... It's kind of a reversal of, of what's going on in, in the Eloi Morlock section of, of the time machine. Indeed, but you notice that, in, a, in effect, I, I guess I would say it's, it's a, a, a complement, that is, hmm. with, with all E's, no I, it's a complement to Wells's work, because Forster is suggesting that the same issues need to be highlighted, and the same question needs to be addressed forcefully to the readership, even if you construct the future world in a radically reversed way, to use your term, Jesse. Mm. Mm. Uh, well, one of the 
one of the things that I think, you know, it's hard not to talk about in this story when we're getting ready to talk about it on the podcast is how, um, you know, typically they describe it as prophetic. I just think appropriate this book is for us today, uh, recording this podcast, but also uh, just living. I spend a lot of time looking through my blue plate. It's actually got better HD quality than than suggested in the story, but <laughs> I don't know if, I mean, I, I think this is the biggest critique, this, this book is the biggest existential critique of my lifestyle <laughs> that, that I've ever read. Most of the time, you know, the problems are not addressing me personally <laughs> and the way, you know, I live in the world, which is through the internet. I, I think I, I would concur. Uh, and I think one of the the problems in, in deciding how we evaluate this this piece by Forster is to decide to what extent we want to take his current uh, pertinence as valid. For example, as we were, you know, deciding, uh, you know, who's online yet? Can we begin this podcast? Mm-hmm. Um when Jim joined the conversation, I'd never had the pleasure of, of meeting you before, Jim. Um, and I, I said that it's lovely to meet you, and you said that it was lovely to meet me. And, and frankly, even though we're talking about the machine stops and Kuno says to his mother, you know, this isn't talking. We have to get face to face. I didn't feel that I wasn't meeting you, Jim, just because I, I can't see your face and I, I, you know, thousands of miles away. So to some extent... This, as as many uh, fantastic works are, uh, the machine stops is a caricature. It's a, it's an enormous exaggeration. And even though we may want to take the critique as having much truth to it, I think we also have to ultimately decide whether or not, in any given instance, that critique should move us to do anything different from what we do. Well, it makes me want to go out in the sun a little more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to blackberry season uh, because that means I get to go out and not be uh, what was that uh, uh, white pap swaddled <laughs> lump of flesh, right? Face right. as white as a fungus. It's making me worry more about m- whether my hairline's going to recede or not. Well, she has um, no hair or teeth at all, right? So yeah. Mm. I, um, there's one thing before we get into some of the those things. I, I want to. Maybe I think Eric might know why it's done this way, but I, I, the way the story's written is very curious. Um, the author, or sorry, the narrator is, I is talking as if this story is not real, but also talking as if it's in the past. It's like here is sort of a fable about how society is, and so in that scene where it says, "Think of her as." Uh, toothless and hairless, or something. There's a, a the, the narrator will break into the story and say, as you will see shortly. You know, um, there's this narrative technique that is a is what we would say. You know, is breaking the story in a certain way. It's very odd. I'm not, I'm not sure why it was done that way, other than um, if it, there was a purpose behind it. And I, it's, it seemed effective, but I'm not sure what it means. I think it does come into other early 
fantastical works. Um, you get this kind of uh, what a tutor of mine called author back chat in uh, C.S. Lewis's oh. Narnia, and right. to an extent in Tolkien, and you find it particularly in works of a fantastic nature, and it's almost. It's like the voice of the storyteller coming in, going, yes, yes, I, I know this didn't happen, and you can't relate. Let right. me explain this. Um, but is I think it's... It, it, today? Is that what that's called? I guess so, or, yeah. Or breaking the fourth mm. wall or something. Like Whereas, you know, now we sort of tend to think of, in literature and stories, it's kind of, well, the narrative perspective. Is this a character's voice? Is it like a third-person omniscient narrator? Whereas in older works, you do have still have the voice of the storyteller harking back to the times when stories would be read aloud and be an oral phenomenon as well. I, th- yeah. I think in this case, in, in Forster, it is because the story is, as you say, it's like a fable or a parable. Um, and it kind of, to me, it's sort of reminded me kind of like um, a lot of like the, the classical writers when they set up hypothetical and symbolic scenarios to explain philosophical points and it has that sort of feel to it to me right well it, it, it does uh hark back all the way to plato's you know the myth of the cave mm-hmm. and uh, it it almost is that right uh when the people go out the the mother doesn't believe when kuno goes outside of the of his little cave where everything is shown to him on screens, uh, projected from behind, right? <laughs> he he goes out, uh, is not believed, and and uh, and the people just go on living in their chains. So it's a good allegory of that. I I hadn't thought of that before, but it certainly goes all the way back to that. And in in the Republic, I think, which is where it, that is first illustrated, uh, Socrates is always you know saying. We can imagine, you know, this. Yeah. So he does. He doesn't say, you know, this is true. He says, if this was true. Mm-hmm. I, I think what both of you folks are saying is is correct. But I do believe there's one extra little element going on here. Um, in in the parable of the caves, um, we understand that Plato is a human being, um, and we can situate him in our historical timeline. And he has a fictional character, but that fictional character, Socrates, um, is to be understood ontologically as what would be the equivalent of a human being in that narrative world. And that narrative world is understood ontologically to be an imaginary equivalent of the world we are in as hearers Mm -hmm. or nowadays readers of that dialogue. And that does happen sometimes. Um, when science fiction takes that omniscient third-person viewpoint. So, for instance, at the end of The War of the Worlds, the narrator says, after just after it's realized that bacteria have destroyed the invading Martians, the narrator says, but whether this is a reprieve for the Martians or for us, only time will tell. Uh, so we get back to that question of, you know, what will our behavior be? Do we know the definitive answer? Well, that Wellesian way of, of being a teacher in his parables. But it says, or us, right? So the narrator is ontologically equivalent to a human being in Victorian England. That's not always the case when you have this kind of rupture. Um, so at the end of... Uh, 
The Metamorphosis by Kafka, we've been taking Gregor's viewpoint throughout the whole thing, and then he dies. And then suddenly it switches, and you know we, we look at his family for the last two pages, and we think, well, wait a minute. If it wasn't Gregor we were listening to all along, who were we listening to? Who is it who's been able to be inside Gregor's mind all of this time if it wasn't Gregor? What, what's the ontology? What's the nature of being of this, this individual? Now, in this particular piece by Forster, when, when the narrator says, humanity never recovered from its entrance into twilight, that's not just breaking the fourth wall. Implicitly, it asks, well, what kind of a creature is this narrator? I mean, if humanity never recovered, then you can't be a human being because humanity never recovered. You wouldn't be there to tell a past tense story about humanity. Mm -hmm. And yet you were inside the heads of Vashti and Kuno. So what is the nature of this narrator? Um, in, in the New Testament, when Jesus speaks parables, it's Jesus speaking parables. Whether you think of him as man or God or both or whatever, it's Jesus speaking parables. But in this book, whoever is speaking that parable isn't exactly human. And I think that's a very powerful additional use of this uh, back talk that you, if I, did I get that term right, Jim? Back chat. Back chat. Thank you. Mm. Uh, yes. And it's, it's more assonant that way too. Good. Um, I, I think that's an important extra use of this back chat because not only do we hear an external viewpoint, we are implicitly made to understand that Man is not necessarily the measure of all things. You know, that line is quoted in this novella. And mm -hmm. the narrative technique makes us think, you know, Kuno is right. Near and far are judged by how many feet it takes, you know, how many steps we, we pace. But on the other hand, he's wrong. Man isn't necessarily the measure of all things. We can, in fact, see other issues that are bigger than man, and we need to somehow balance those together. I think this narrative stance does that extra thing, which I mention not simply as a point of narratology, but because it's thematically connected with the kind of lesson that I think the story is trying to uh, convey. There's a there's a a lot of you know I I was trying to read up on this and. A lot of the things that I've read about it, just they don't resonate with me. But one of the things that I didn't see and I was kind of surprised I couldn't find anything on it was um, the philosophical take. I think that the Forster is critiquing is like there's in in philosophy, they they, they teach us there's a, there's a empiricism and rationalism and empiricism is making ideas and then checking them against the world and rationalism is having ideas and following their them logically to their conclusions this is sort of a rough way of looking at them or math is very rationalistic whereas science you know uh, i don't know um geology is empiricist empiricistic <laughs> empirical empirical um so one of the one of the statements that goes on in the story is that 
man retreats into the caves and and talks about ideas that can be solved by man rather than the unanswerable questions of the stars. Now, I would say, well, are those, those questions unanswerable or are they just more difficult? Um, and when, when a famous lecturer, which apparently everyone is a lecturer in the, <laughs> in these days, except for the person who runs the, the, I guess the flight attendant on the, on the airship, pretty much everyone's a, a lecturer. Even she's a lecturer. She lectures about the, the mountains, but that's, that's what everyone does. They're, they're all, they're all your job, Mr. Uh, oh, sorry, <laughs> Professor Eric S. Rabkin, right? They all have your job. <laughs> discussing secondhand ideas and one of the things that they do is the the most famous lecturer in the story says um we shouldn't try to understand the we we want to avoid firsthand experience it's it's not good and secondhand is much better but tenth hand is the best if you can get tenth hand ideas because once you start filtering it through other great thinkers uh, we can understand, say, the French Revolution not as it was or as it might have been, but as it would be in our society. And I'm like, what the hell would that be like, a French <laughs> Revolution in their society? It's sort of like, is that mean it's like the way we feel about, you know, distant events uh, in history? We look at Alexander the Great and we, we don't think of all the millions of people he slaughters, but we only think about, you know... The stories about him and and, and so we sort of think of it as an epic rather than as a a monstrous uh, rampage through Asia. I think you've got a terrific point. It's it's reminiscent of that quote attributed to Stalin that um, oh, yes. one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. Um, as we get further and further from the the juice of the individual human experience the nature of our understanding of that experience and hence what the experience means to us changes radically. And I think you're right. Forster doesn't want us to lose sight of the individuals, which is why he gives us or one of the effects comes from giving us two comparatively vivid individuals, although not well-rounded, but still they are vivid. Um, I would say two other things, though, about what you just said, Jesse. One is you as a teacher and me as a teacher, um, we aren't just dealing with secondhand experience. Uh, we don't just read what other critics say, and we don't limit ourselves to one book. We have lives. We read more books. We want our students to read those books, and we discuss with them our firsthand experience of reading the books. We don't stick with the ideas in the books as if books were just vessels for conveying meaning. They are themselves um, experience generators for human beings who engage with them. Um, but in this particular thing about the, the tenth, that the second and the tenth, um, I think there's another reference to Plato there. Your, your uh, assertion about the parallelism with the parable of the caves, I think, is really a terrific insight. It had not occurred to me in reading this. But when we get this famous lecturer talking about abstracting further and further, what came to my mind was Plato's uh, dialogue called Eon, um, you know, I-O-N, in which the, the Socrates character is asked, how is it that I can't write good poetry like Homer, but I'm terrific at explaining poetry? 
Mm. And Socrates explains that there is a muse. There is this motive force. And there is descending from the muse, like, and the exact analogy is made in the dialogue, like one chain, like one piece bit of metal hanging on to another, as gets done by the, a lodestone. Mm. Um, we have the, the muse d- having power appear in the rhetor, that is the creator of the poetry, and the rhetor is able to to, to transmit that to the actors and the actors transmit that to the audience and and so on. So there is a a chain, a great chain, which is exactly what Plato is talking about. Now, what's important, of course, for that reference to be useful here is that while Plato is meaning to praise the the poet and the, the critic he also makes clear that each is only partial, that the ideal, the whole true form, is what you get in the Platonic universe of the muse. That's where the power really is. And to think that going further and further down the chain is the same as going further and further up the chain is a radical mistake. Right. So this guy is being criticized in a sense because he is giving the philosophy of those who aim to get subterranean, who want to go into the cave instead of coming up from the cave and going up to that platonic sphere. No, and I, I didn't intend to make this all about ancient Greek uh, uh, philosophy, but it also is a critique, I think, of, of one of the lessons I I always give to my students about, you know, I have to I have to have them write. Uh, teach them how to write essays. All it's just, I think there's something wrong with our school system that makes everything about essays because almost nobody wants to read essays. So it's not like they're all going to become essayists when they, you know, they grow up. They're, we're not having pamphlets off. Maybe blogs or pamphlets. I don't know. We we just we have this emphasis on essays. So one of the techniques I've developed is you don't memorize anything, but there's some things that you can do and. Um, you know, you you sort of practice down certain lines, and then eventually you'll you'll be able to be more comfortable writing these you know SAT style essays or or something like that. And one of the ones I always give them is the the uh, uh, quasi Aristotelian view of what happiness is, because often the questions are very ambiguous. There's like, uh, would you be would you you know, what is happiness or, you know, something like that. And so I say, you know, happiness is the exercise of vital powers through lines of excellence in a life affording them scope. Right? <laughs> you say, well, what's that mean? And I say, okay, here's how you break it down. And, and we can imagine, for example, a horse, there's a, a happy horse. What's a happy horse? A horse, happy horse is a, is an animal that is, that is uh, able to run freely in fields with other horses, eat grass, um, have sex with other horses and uh, occasionally get chased and get away from uh, wild animals that want to eat them because that would that's what horses are good at and that's what horses like to do and, and I say well, we, we can imagine a uh, a man who uh, is a shipwright and he he builds ships and he builds them well um, is he a happy shipwright yes if he 
manages to build fleet fleets, <laughs> uh, then he is a happy shipwright because um, that's what happiness is, is doing things and doing them well over a long period of time uh, so that we can judge them to be happy. Happiness is a verb, not a noun, you know, blah, blah, blah. I've got a whole lecture, lecture that I do. Um, but uh, the lecture always concludes with, well, man is not an a- animal like the others. Um, our great faculty is not sharp claws or um, uh, even, you know, great strength. The bear can out-wrestle us. The, the tiger can outrun us. Um, in at least some ways, the horses can outrun us, and yet we are the masters of all these things. So what is our great skill that we need to hone and master? It's the mind, right? And that, um, this always makes for a nice essay. Right? <laughs> um, but the problem is, is that's the argument that that I think the people who went in those caves are living with, is they, the body doesn't matter, it's the mind. This skin, this flesh, these, this hair, these teeth, these, these are not what man is. Man is a mind. And so they allow themselves to be swaddled by machines and washed by machines and, and uh, out of human contact um, because the body doesn't matter. It's the mind. And yet what we have is essentially babies, right? These are big, fat creatures living in diapers, you know, swaddled in diapers. And so it, I would say this is, you know, coming back to Wells's idea of, you know, the, uh, the, the wealthy classes that just think about uh, problems and the working classes who actually solve the problems. Um, this is, you know, this is that critique is that you can't just be a guy who sits and reads all day. You have to go out and do stuff occasionally. So this is definitely a challenge to both Mr. Jim Moon and to me, I think. (laughs) Well, I think you consider that the time this was written, you were seeing um, a shift in intellectual life. Um, Forster would be the right age to remember the the great bloom of Victorian society where a great many things were discovered, invented by, well, men in sheds. Yes. Uh, But by the early 20th century, you've got a lot of leading thinkers who have never ventured out of their rooms at college. And I think there's definitely like a, a satire of academia of that people aren't discovering and researching. They're just commenting on previous research and yeah, sort of just actually, recycling and recycling. The logical positivists, mm. right? The uh, Bertrand Russell era guys who they we're going to solve it. Mm. We're going to solve all their problems through uh, natural deductive logic. <laughs> and any statement can be uh, argued for effectively. And it ends in failure. But um, it seems like, it seems like um, Forster's saying, yeah, of course it's going to end in failure. Because you, ha- you can't just choose the mind only. You have to have... You have to have first-hand experience. At least that—that's that, the way I—I I would take this as like if if it if it has a a, a past critique, uh, a critique of the era. That that's what I was thinking. I didn't see that in any other people's essays on this. Well, it, it, it occurred to me because I mean I 
do a lot of research for my podcast and my writing, and I find in the internet age, you increasingly find when you look online the same information rehashed, 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 and no one's actually doing any proper research. They're just paraphrasing what went before. And um, you have work by a lot of historians currently that are throwing up facts that are actually contradict our our view, the, the sort of the, the consensus. I mean, um, uh, Terry Jones, um, former Monty Python member, in his uh, old age, he's done a lot of um, historical books and documentaries where he uncovers various myths we take as read, such as um, one that sticks in my mind is um, the story of Columbus, that, you know, the one we all sort of learn through culture these days as well, you know, they thought the old world was flat and he proved it was round. Uh, but Terry Jones has shown, well, actually, no, that's, that is a myth that has grown up and become embedded as fact. It goes back to a Nathaniel Hawthorne story telling about the discovery of America, which found its way into school textbooks and has been repeated every, ever since. But if you go back and look at old maps, you find people were well aware the world was round. The reason they didn't go to America the way Columbus did was because it was a very long voyage and dangerous and they didn't think it was doable in the ships they had. They didn't know there was a, an America there for the most part anyways. Well, no, there was a whole continent they didn't expect, but you know, did, they had you know, considered that there was a, what they called the Northwest Passage. You could go, sure. go to the east by the, via the west, but it was just too far. But you know, it's kind of it's, a, it's an illustration, I think, of kind of now we live in the information age. I think the challenge of the 21st century and why this story is, is still very powerful and very telling and very relevant is that it does warn us about this danger of rehashing and recycling information without first-hand experience, first-hand research. One, one it's, of the, it's, yeah, sorry. Uh, one, to me, one of the uh, the artistic fine choices made by Forster here is his use of the word idea. Um, first of all, we understand that that can be undertaken as a reference to Plato's notion of idea as in ideal or form. And so all this ancient philosophy stuff, I think, is warranted and much more than, than you've raised already, uh, Jesse. But I think that if we're think of this as a critique of just thinking, um, the the locus classicus there is Descartes, you know, mm. and in effect, what this is saying is thinking alone is not enough to say that you exist in any meaningful sense. I think, therefore, I am can't really be the beginning of an argument about the nature of the world. Uh, so we have two different kinds of ideas referred to in this in this story. But they are never distinguished, and that means that they they interpenetrate. When when Kuno says that he looked up in the sky and he thought he saw four stars that looked like the outline of a man, and then he saw three other stars that sort of looked like they would be a belt. I mean, he's describing Orion, which mm -hmm. is one of the most prominent constellations, mm -hmm. and since it's in the since it's in the zodiacal um, equator, it's actually visible all over the world. Right. We can all see whether we're north, as 
he was or south as Vashti was, we can all see Orion. And in Greek mythology, Orion is a great hunter giant who is elevated to a constellation taking a place almost among the gods. Kuno looks up there. He sees this possibility that we all should recognize as a great heroic hunter. And his mother says, that's not an idea. That's not an idea. That's, 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 he said it to me, but I didn't have it as an idea. And she just recounts it to a friend. And the friend says, she gets it wrong. And she, exactly. Exactly. That, that's the funny part, right? It's when she gives it, gives the story, she gets the information slightly wrong. Yes. So there are two kinds of ideas. There are the ideas that are received. And one of the critiques of the Academy is what do you do with received ideas? And there are other ideas which are the ones that come out of your own imagination. And part of the critique of the bifurcation of the mind and the body here is to say that our imaginations are not encapsulated, that useful imagination is to some extent informed by physical experience, by actually doing something, seeing something, existing as a body. So the fact that the same word idea means these two different things and that they are never distinguished, I think, invites us to ask ourselves, what really makes an idea important? And that, again, to me, is one of the great virtues of, of a story, which, frankly, from a, from a narratological viewpoint, is dull. I mean, it's, you know, there's not much happening, and I don't much care about the people, but as I read the story that comes out of their conversations and espouse desires, I find myself thinking a lot and raising what I take to be important questions. I don't mean I invented them. I mean, they're in the book. Uh, Let me ask you this. When, when you give a bad podcast, do you, do you ask for euthanasia afterwards? Because <laughs> if you are, that's what we're, <laughs> we're living in, right? Uh, when you, when you give a bad lecture, do you know you ask for euthanasia after? Well, probably not. But uh, I was thinking, well, is she really sad? Is she really sad about her her bad thing, or is or is it just you know by not get a, being able to give a good lecture? That's that's all there is, right? That's all she's got. I, I, I vote for just, number two. Yeah. So it's 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 a it's. You want to be sympathetic to these people, but it's hard because <laughs> at least uh, Vashti's. I mean, eventually she. I guess there's some confidence, but yeah, there's this thing where you read a well story, and the characters aren't really what you're there for. You're there for the ideas that they give us, right. but that's <laughs> that. That itself is is uh stories are not life i guess <laughs> this is a very erudite piece i mean forsters and you know those those people who know their bible um as soon as they find out vashti's name will realize that she is not somebody we're supposed to admire right well i've i've seen her name is in the book of esther right exactly and and she's a queen who she's beautiful and right. Ahasuerus wants to show her off and says, you know, come out and present yourself to my guests. And uh, modern feminists take her refusal as uh, an example of uh, how her independence of spirit. 
and she does not want to be objectified. And, and I give you that. That's a perfectly valid reading. But the traditional reading in Judaism and on the celebration of Purim, which is the, the holiday that celebrates the saving of the Jews from Ahasuerus, or actually from his, his uh, viceroy, who would have them all destroyed. It's an early attempt at genocide. It's, and it's Esther who manages to prevent that genocide by taking the place of Vashti. Um, right. Vashti is understood and had been, you know, for thousands of years before the modern feminists came along as a woman who simply was not willing to take her place in society and is seen traditionally as an evil, wicked person. And I'm not at all suggesting that uh, Vashti and Forster's story should be seen as evil and wicked. I think, in fact, she should be seen as unnatural. She doesn't realize that Kuno could be her son. And in the most unmaternal thing you can imagine, when he seems to be heartsick, she rejects him and thinks of him as evil and improper. I mean, she is the worst possible kind of mother. She would let him die. And so in that sense, Forster is reinforcing the notion of Vashti being a reference to an evil and wicked woman. It, it, she's also the, the, one, the one who won't come out, right? <laughs> so when Kuno says, hey, come visit me, right? Vashti says, nope, won't come out. Yeah. Well, this is she has this psychosomatic illness when she first goes to the air car. It's true. Um, and and seeing all those people, uh, oh, they're horrific. I I love that uh, that stampede going into the airship. Um, here we have the book, the unique book, the only book, right? We have the book, which, by the way. When she consults it at first, it falls open to a page. And I just out of curiosity, I looked up that number and son of a gun, it's a prime number. So <laughs> it's, it's a unique, you know, message from the machine to her through the book. When they're trying to get onto the airship, remember, one of the passengers drops his book. And right. since actually touching anything or picking anything up would be so unmechanical rather than be unmechanical, they actually trample on the book itself. Right. It's, a, it's a self-contradictory philosophy to the extent that the critique of mechanicalism is a critique of Christianity in particular or religion in general. Um, that, that scene, uh, I think, needs to be understood as saying that there's something fundamentally wrong about translating all of the real values in life to something that exists in a different realm and after death. One of the, uh, one of the uh, other ideas I had about what, what was going on is, is I, I wanted to ask myself, what, what is the machine exactly? Is it, is it the organization of everything? And in, in that case, that society, like if we translate this book to today, that's, capitalism or something like that it's it's the system by which all things happen right and and so the book of the machine is is almost something like google or the internet or wikipedia right it's something that's very big and not totally under this you know one person's control 
because it's all committees. And that led me to thinking, oh, maybe this is a sort of a a look at communism, sort of in the pre-revolution uh, period. This is what a communist state would be like. And then w- there's evidence for that as a, you know, the beds, they only come in one size, right? right. And you can't, you can't get the... Things can change, but only if it changes for everybody. I think that that particular view um, is easy. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. It's 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 a, a one can come to that view quickly by noticing that in the very first paragraph, we're told that the cell cell, which could be mm-hmm. like a monk or it could be like a prisoner, that the cell in which Vashti lives is six sided like that of a bee. Mm-hmm. And at the end, when the airship plummets through the vomitorium and collapses, the cells on the side of the, the egress tunnel, uh, one after the other, we're told that it collapses like a honeycomb breaking apart. Mm-hmm. So the notion of a hive society in which everyone has an assigned mechanical place and no sense of individuality is there. And one can easily... Uh, certainly in the period 1930 to 1975, see that as meaning communism. But I think that we also have seen other totalizing command situations, as in fascism. And I think that there's a wider argument being made here, and that is totalitarianism. It's not, it doesn't matter what the flavor is. Yeah. What matters is that as Emerson said, machines are in the saddle and ride mankind. Excuse me, things are in the saddle and ride mankind. And as we become more and well, I may have said this on one of our podcasts before, Jesse, people like to say of some of these totalitarians like Mussolini, they made the trains run on time. But I like to point out that the trains make us run on time. Yeah. You know, until there was an 815 from Greenwich, Nobody had to make sure to leave house, the house in time to catch the 815 for Greenwich. And I think that uh, if the first railway comes from uh, Jim Moon's neighborhood, um, it's worth noticing that that happened long before 1909. And that, that Forster is extending the notion that the more we live in a network of machines, which together may be called simply the machine, and that network exists in the timetables, the railroads going back and forth, the distribution and the production and distribution system for the coal that runs the net, that runs those machines, the, the trains, and heats the houses of the people who get onto and off the trains, and bring the produce to the cities where the people get... I mean, you, you can call that capitalism because it's buying and selling, but you could mm-hmm. also think of it just as a totalizing system. And that system is, I think, it includes communism, but it includes capitalism. But the, the argument here is that when the machine becomes perfected, there is no room for individuality. And then he throws us back to ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, for instance, you know, you talked about euthanasia, that same paragraph, uh, there is a paragraph where it says, you know, our strong will suffer euthanasia. I, I love this reference. It says uh, it's, it's only it's before you're even halfway through the, the, the story in the dawn of the world, our weekly meaning our 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 week, uh, W.E.A.K. must be exposed on Mount Tigetus 
in its twilight, our strong will suffer euthanasia, that the machine may progress, that the machine may progress, mm-hmm. that the machine may progress eternally. So you have this litany, you have this, this repetition. So we know that this is, this is proto prayer. And so I asked myself, what's Mount Tigetus? I mean, I didn't know what Mount Tigetus was. It did not, you know, ring a bell for me. So I looked it up. Mm-hmm. Turns out that Mount Tigetus is one of the very first mountains that we know to have a specific name in Western culture. And it is taken to be the site in ancient Greece of the worship of Helios, the sun. Ah, right, right. And that's one of the things that they abandoned, exactly. right? Exactly. In addition to that, it became a place, you know how like Oedipus was staked out in the wilderness to die? Mm-hmm. Criminals were staked out on Mount Tigetus as punishment which is what they're doing here for, you know, the weekly, right? The homeless are expelled. Yeah. Right. And in the history of Greece, and this, I love this part, in the history of Greece, during the first barbarian invasion, is when those people came from nor- the north, right? The locals who were overwhelmed by the superior physical force of the barbarians fled up onto Mount Tigetus to mm-hmm. recuperate before they were able to come down and beat the barbarians off. And when I see the end of this story, of Forster's story, where the homeless have been out there waiting all the time to eventually come back, I'm thinking, my God, they take the weak, they expose them on Mount Tigetus, and they don't die. They're mm-hmm. actually managing to survive on the fringes. And that's where real civilization is until it has the chance to reassert itself. When I see all of these pieces of ancient Greece um, or Greek history and mythology appearing again in this story so consistently, um, what I take it is that despite being set in the future and despite being set in a world in which machine means something mechanical, Forster is saying something larger. He's saying this is a danger in human existence that we can try to perfect society. We can, as Plato does in the Republic, talk Mm -hmm. about a perfect social system. But if we had a perfect social system, it would eventually destroy what it means to be a human being. Agreed. Absolutely. Um, There's also, in a way, talks about how they screen their population and that the uh, physically inclined are weeded out at birth. That's another ancient Greek reference because that's um, an inversion of the ancient Spartan techniques of where supposedly they would leave babes out for a period of times to weed out the weakly ones. Indeed. The strong, the strong babies would be took back in. And this is kind of a complete inversion of that in this uh, hypothetical future of where the physical is being so denigrated that anyone who might want to go outside will be removed before they even have a chance to grow. So the machine may continue. Yeah. Not to go against the, uh, the, the Greek, but I also, <laughs> I also think there's something, there's something to the idea that this is like also an inversion of the, of the, the garden of Eden story, because instead of, um, taking in knowledge and then being kicked out into the world, they are taking in knowledge and kicking out the world, and eventually th- that they are kicked out, 
<laughs> um, but don't survive. There's this there's this feeling that the the world the, it's like sort of the universe is collapsing down and it, everything is getting reversed so that instead of it at the beginning we're at the end for Vashti and Kuno they seem to think they're both going to die that but that man will not be dumb enough to do what uh, at least Kuno thinks humans will not be dumb enough to get to let this happen again um <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what do you think are we are we headed down inevitably towards a society like this? It seems to me we're getting more and more involved with with the machine as it is. I, I you mean in real life or what the story? Yeah, is in predict- real life. In real life. Hmm. I certainly know that, uh, given my medical history and my age. If if I lived in a less machine supported era than I do, I probably wouldn't be alive. So uh, I guess in that sense, I'm a product of the weakness that the machine, in that metaphorical or metonymic sense, uh, means. I, I'm a product of what that breeds. I mean, I, I took my pills this morning. I'm I'm looking around me through eyeglasses. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, this, this story is very disturbing to me. I think one of the things that's uh, that's hopeful is the ending. I really do think that it's that it's very hopeful. Um, when when Kuno is understood by the narrator, whatever that narrator might be, human, you know, genuinely omniscient being of whatever is not human. When Kuno is understood to have seen her, we never get anything other than, you know, I saw her. She gets her neck penetrated by that white snout. Right. And he is she is luckier than he is because she dies, whereas he has to continue to suffer. What I saw there was something quite common at that period in, in English literature. There is a sexual competition for the female. It's the first time we see Kuno having a female. Right. The sexual competition between the 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 singular society, the the ultimate antique authority, and the more democratic individual. This is exactly what you see in Dracula, mm. right? And that that biting of the neck is what, in fact, Dracula will do. And he, the aristocrat alone, who's able to control others and shift shapes and all sorts of things, he alone is in competition with Jonathan Harker to be able to have access to the woman. At the end of this story, Forster's story, that woman is dead. So we don't have any assuagement of our fears as we get at the end of Stoker's novel. Instead, we have Kuno saying, this will never happen again. No fool will start the machine. Humanity has learned its lesson. And then we have to ask ourselves, have we learned that lesson? Is it enough to see the lesson in a parabolic form set in the future, or are we going to just go on and do it? Um, So if you ask about our current lives, um, speaking as a a middle-class American, um, I've got to tell you, I could easily become 
a white fungus, a swaddled <laughs> one, uh, because I have no need to move. Yeah. But that's why I go downstairs in my apartment building every day and spend half an hour, half an hour on the elliptical trainer, because I do realize that my life will be worse. And I think that the number of people who are trying to diet and trying to exercise and going out and gardening and so on, I think people do have a passion for staying connected with the rest of the world. And uh, yes, some people do it so little that they wonder, has something gone wrong? But humanity as a whole, uh, we may be more spectators than we used to be, but we're still doing an awful lot of stuff. I wanted to ask you guys, have you both seen uh, WALL-E, the Disney Pixar movie from a few years ago? I have. Um, I used to think that the, uh, the, the first half of that movie was great and the second half was just not, not that great. But uh, I think that the second half of the movie is the machine stops in a sort of a, in a, a kind of way. Do you remember? Do you yeah, remember? Yeah, how, how yeah, do you yeah. with those fat kids? It, well, it wasn't just kids. They were it, they were adults, right? They, it was the it was the fat fathers and the fat mothers and the fat uh, children, and you know, and their lifestyle was about you know drinks. The, how have you tried the new drink? <laughs> I'm sorry. And then they would change the fashion yeah, so that it would. You're quite right. I, I apologize. They are, in fact, adults, but they are only adults chronologically. They all look like kids because yeah. of their shape and size and large Maybe. eyes compared to the size of their heads. So in that mm -hmm. sense, that's another way to confirm your insight, Jesse. It is a version of the machine stops. They're all infantilized. Yeah. And and if you read a lot into it, then that makes uh the machine, the the stopping of the machine that does happen, is is done by a robot, the uh, Wally character and his girlfriend, right? Right. <laughs> um, I I quite liked that movie at the time, but uh, I'm I'm liking it even more now, just thinking about <laughs> in regard to this story. Cool. I I would point out among the other cute little things that that uh, Forster did that I think might escape uh, a fast reading at least. He uses the term vomitorium consistently mm. for the egresses from the underground world. Um, uh, most people, if they've ever encountered the term vomitorium, uh, have they get it in this false etymology. They they're told the story about the ancient Romans feasting so much that they, <laughs> they have special rooms for barfing, mm, ex exactly, <laughs> or special bowls for barfing, and that's not, of course, not the case. No. Uh, vomitorium is an architectural feature designed to allow fast exit from an arena or a stadium so that people can leave quickly. Um, and the fact that the exits from the entire world of these subterranean future humans is a vomitorium suggests to me that they are nothing but spectators. No, that's the point, yeah. Well, another sci-fi parallel that struck me reading this is um, Logan's Run. Oh, sure. Um, yes. That has the similar thing of this, um, the people who escape and supposedly there's nothing outside the cities, but in fact there are people living in the wilds, yet everyone inside lives this very ordered and dependent on machines in a similar way lifestyle of where, um, I can't remember what it's called, called, the network or there's 
where people can just appear in your room and you can have sex with them and mm. um you know everyone just yeah, there's sort of a disaffection there mm. too that's it's that's much like in this story i i think that's a, a perfect analogy a closer one chronologically would be zamyatin's we in which the the world outside the one state or the United States, depending on the translation, um, is beyond the green wall. And inside the, the totalizing city, everything is glass. And uh, you can see everybody. Uh, you have to all go according to the table of hours. Everything is totalized. It's mechanized. Mm-hmm. You know? But outside there with a the mephi R, I suppose short for Mephistopheles, the, 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 the devils, the ones that are thought of as being outside of what is acceptable or the word proper is what gets used in Forster's book. It's outside where you have the people who represent the ultimate hope of humanity once this total system is brought down. And in the same way, in Samyatin's novel, and this, this reverse Eden, which picks up what both of you, you fellows were just mentioning, um, this reverse Eden is also shown to be anti-romantic. That is, the narrator in Samyatin says, I don't know why anybody would like you know, flowers. I like boots. You know, and uh, we get the same thing here when we look through Vashti's eyes. You know, oh, that's a silly idea. I don't even understand it. It has no meaning. You know, why would anybody want, you know, to go and see grass? Well, when she's on the airship, she asked the stewardess, you know, can you shut the blind? I don't want to see those mountains. They give me no ideas. (laughs) Exactly. And that's another that that phrase, Jim, is another one of the things that I just Mm. I, I my eyes opened and I thought, gosh, this guy can write. Because the mm. phrase he uses twice within a paragraph is metal blind. And metal, obviously, mm. is what he means specifically as the kind of machine. He's not talking about perfect social organization the way uh, Plato is. He's talking about machines made of metal and they hum in the background and so on. And the word blind has multiple meanings. There's Vashti is willingly blind. Mm-hmm. She wants not to see. Mm. And, you know, by repeating that double phrase, frightening ideas is what she means. Excuse me? They give her threatening, frightening ideas, right? Look out there. That's not the ideas she's used to. Those are not acceptable ideas. Exactly. So they give her no ideas, unmachine-like ideas. Exactly. And so what Forster is saying to us is every time we think that we are making our lives easier by turning away, we are potentially making our, our lives poorer, we are potentially closing ourselves off to the ideas that really matter, that could make our lives richer, that could make our lives different. As mm-hmm. a philosophical, as I say, as a, as a drama, I, I find this a very, very weak and preachy piece. But as a philosophical essay, because the writing of it is done so well, because it's written so, so richly and allusively and with such attention to, I think, even the etymologies of some of these terms, um, I think that the piece itself rewards us trying to come up with new imaginative ideas. In that sense, it's training us to be different than the kind of people it's criticizing. So I think it's a very effective piece philosophically. I agree. Uh, only the only thing you know, you brought up we and. It's uh, that's one of the ones like E.M. Forster's The Machine Stops. It's one of the ones I hadn't read until very recently. Um, the only one that sort of would have fit into my uh, conception of a world like this 
that I had read when I was younger was um, Brave New World, which sort of is like the transition between almost in a way between where we are and where they are, at least socially, um, with the with the taking, you know, the the taking of drugs and the the um, the the outside world and the the. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the the a lot of the plot in, that's in that book, but I think it's it's very very relevant still. Although this one, it, the machine stop seems even more advanced. You know, like it, it seems like it must have been written later. It's just so. Uh, a lot, I've seen a lot of people saying, "Oh, it's it's got instant messaging," and it's, I, I I think of it as <laughs> Skype. Um, but you know, if you actually look at it, it's not as advanced as it appears. I mean, it doesn't really have instant messaging because if if your person's not there, you can't leave a message. Right? Um, you can't send them an email. The it's pneumatic tube. She says, you didn't get me? Oh, you didn't send a letter by a pneumatic tube. It's like, yeah. well, but it, they, they can but have it, visual transmission, but they can't have <laughs> textual transmission. Wow. I, you know, I wondered a little about that. I, I wondered to what extent Forster was actually making criticism of our of our inability to progress. So... For example, the the pneumatic tubes um, had already been in use Mm -hmm. in Europe from the 1880s on. And at least in one city, Paris, you could actually send at a special higher rate, you could send a letter from one end of the city to the other um, by pneumatic tube so that you could get it delivered, you know, in half an hour. This Mm -hmm. is before they were just sending telegrams across the city that way. and nobody, as far as I know, ever built a pneumatic system that covered more geography than uh, than Paris did. But uh, by 1909, it was clear nobody ever would because telegrams replaced what you needed. And the only virtue would be to move things around. Well, mm-hmm. who had talked about moving things around in pneumatic tubes? It's in looking backward. Bellamy mm. does this in 1888. People are getting stuff delivered to them from central depositories by pneumatic yeah. tube. So Forster can't possibly think that he's giving us something new. And by suggesting that it has advanced beyond the point at which by 1909 he already knew it wouldn't advance, I wonder if he was, in fact, trying to critique the belief that Technology will necessarily always get better. Maybe he's letting us know that. Yeah, the tech in here is not, it's not, there's nothing new. It's the way it's packaged. I mean, they had visual, you know, demonstrations of what we would call TV um, in that era. It was was not (laughs) very good. You know, they have moving images. They have all of, all of the things. But what is so strikingly advanced is this, Deep thinking about saying, well, look, we're we're headed down this path where instead of us going to the thing, the thing comes to us and man is the man is the thinker. Man is the measure of all things. That's what we should do all the time is go around measuring ideas and judging them. 
And so naturally, we will follow down this path. That means all the necessary things. The doctor comes to you, right? Well, uh, it used to be that the doctor would come to you. Now you have to go to the doctor. Um, so it's not so much a... Um, a prediction it's the, the the predictions are so good with t- the technologies i think is that is that it's the people and the ideas of of how people are that are so insightful it's it, it's when you read about this story online a lot of people are talking about it it's it predicted this and it predicted that and we all know that that's not the business of science fiction really it's it's about looking at people and looking at what the technologies do to people. And I think that that's where the power comes from, is that it is so uh, thoughtful. You know, I'm living in a oblong room, not a uh, hexagonal room. <laughs> but um, there is a temptation to, you know, get get your get the doctor on Google instead of the doctor in the doctor's office. Yeah. I think he, he's imaginative leap isn't so much inventing a new technology. It's taking the technology of his day and presenting it as a, a total synergy, a totalizing synergy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an interesting piece of where he talks about the blue slates and uh, about the quality of the pictures and the sound. And he does say that man's kind of said, I learned to adapt and said, that's good enough. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, which is one of those little telling little remarks in it of where I think he is making a point of kind of the technology is actually old. It's just the system of organization, which is new and perpetuating itself. And but I think it's an Edwardian future. Yeah. But I think the other thing, um, I mean, you said come about how the tech isn't particularly science fictional. I think where the story is sophisticated in a science fiction sense is that unlike a lot of stories afterwards with similar setups, the machine isn't a controlling evil cyber overlord. That The machine is a tool that has got out of hand. The problem is the people going along with it. Um, I think it's interesting that in the third part where we see the society of the machine break down, you get this, this rise of the machine religion, which... He, does, mm-hmm. he goes out the way to say it wasn't decided by the committees who run the machine society. It just kind of happened and everyone went along with it. Mm-hmm. And as the machine starts repairing, instead of people going, hey, let's repair the machines, they go, well, no, the machine will repair itself. We'll just go along with it. We'll, we'll put up with it. We'll put up with it. And I think, you know, it's not so much a dystopia where humans are enslaved by machines. It's humans being enslaved by their own social attitudes where they must conform, where they must go with the consensus. This uh, is this is what Jerry Doctor always always talking about. He's always saying, you know, we have to be able to open up our machines and be able to understand if we want to how they work and tinker with them. But if we if we are unable to uh you know due to laws or to, you know, the screws holding things down you know with with weird hex heads so that we can't access our devices um that is where things really start to go wrong and it makes sense to me it's not that i put my computer together myself but the fact that i know all the parts that are in it makes me think that oh if this thing goes wrong i can 
go in and fix it. In their society, they've got a mending committee, but none of them know how to actually fix anything. They're just the people who take the complaints. I I accept the notion that, because I felt it myself, that in reading most of the, the story, one feels that it's the people creating the problems for themselves, not the machine doing it to them. But there is this small paragraph. Um, he paused, and as absurd as he was, his last words moved her. Right? Even, even Vashti can be a little bit of a mother. I mean that in the positive sense. <laughs> uh, for Kuno had lately asked to be a father, and his request had been refused by the committee. His was not a type that the machine desired to hand on. Mm-hmm. So the question for me is, if we really want to think that the machine has, is not controlling them, it's just a tool, but we don't know how to control it anymore, then we have to read that sentence as the committee is projecting on the machine mm-hmm. and personifying it. But if, in fact, that's not... Deifying it. Deifying it. Not okay. just personifying it. Agreed. But if not, if they actually understand what the machine wants, then... Yeah, maybe it is controlling us or not us, thank God, but uh, but them. <laughs> you know, there there's some other thing. Again, maybe I overread, but, you know, no, they, they talk- I don't think you can. Beg your pardon? I don't think you can. It's it's pretty it's pretty allegorical. You can do whatever you want. with it. <laughs> OK, when when that passage that you were referring to, Jim, about the uh, about people adapting, um, I'm reminded of Voltaire's. Uh, famous aphorism that the better is the enemy of the good. And Voltaire, of course, is right. If you spend so much time trying to perfect something because you can't be satisfied with something that's good enough, then you take you, you waste resources, you waste life, you you become dissatisfied when you could have been satisfied. On the other hand, if you accept something that's not good enough as being good enough, then you'll never get to the better. And so, as with so many wise statements, in one context, it's absolutely right. In another context, it's absolutely wrong. And I kind of thought that that Forster was getting us to realize this because it was clear that they were wrong not to seek the better. But by using exactly that phrase, I think he was reminding us that, of course, Sometimes we pride ourselves on being willing not to seek the better. I, I think he's engaging, just as I think he's engaging with Wells, I think he's engaging with, with Greek philosophy. Uh, his, his view of Protagoras, I think, is implicit here. And, and I think he's engaging with many other things in his literary tradition, like Voltaire. Um, and so as not to be mysterious, I, for you know, those people who may listen to this and you know, not quickly, quickly know who Protagoras is, he is this pre-Socratic philosopher who is famous for having said, man is the measure of all things. Um, and you, you, Early on in our discussion, Jesse, you were uh, opposing realism with empir- uh, empiricism, with um, idealism, rationalism, rationalism. rationalism with, uh, with empiricism. But Protagoras is taken by, by Plato to be the first sophist. And, you know, sophists were were relativists. They were neither the one nor yeah. the other. They were relativists. And in in ancient Greece, they were famous for being able to 
to make an argument on demand showing that this thing that you might have thought was bad is good or this thing that was good that you might have thought was good was bad. And some of them made their living by going from town to town, polis to polis, and being debaters for hire. And they would be paid to come up with this position or that position. To the ancient Greeks, the abilities of the sophists to exploit a relativist position to make the mind more agile, to exercise the mind, that was thought of as a great good. But we can understand what that ability to take different positions on the same subject has come to mean today because our current word, sophistry, means making an appealing but clearly false argument. Yeah, Socrates is dead, dead set against the idea that sophists are, are doing a good job. But uh, that reminds me that there was a story not that long ago about a editorial cartoon company, you may have seen this online, uh, that was selling uh, editorial cartoons to newspapers. And for liberal newspapers, they had one tagline, and for conservative newspapers, that the other. And it was a picture of three um, people who were in jail or prison or who sh- who were bad people. And it said, which of these persons deserves uh, a fair trial or something? Maybe it wasn't a fair trial. It might have been uh, to be read Miranda rights. Yeah, I think it was I think it was to do with the Boston bombing or something like that. Um, and. The it says, you know, that's the question. And the answer is inverted upside down. So you have to turn the newspaper over. And for one newspaper, the conservatives, they have one answer, which is none of them. (laughs) And for the other, they have all of them. Right. For the liberal newspaper. And that the fact that somebody's making a living selling that both ways is, you know, that that's the direct challenge to the idea that. Uh, there is a right answer. It's the, the only right answer is pay attention to me and give me money. <laughs> well, not you know the guy who wrote the. I, I hope you can go. send me the URL for that. That sounds like sure. I'd love to see that. Um, the guy who wrote the article about that variable response mm-hmm. perhaps was doing something other than saying give me money. Perhaps he was demonstrating that the facility with which something can be turned to specious use ought to give us pause about accepting the significance of such use. And it may well be exactly that. Yeah. Well, and it may well be that despite what Plato may or may not have intended, we can recognize that many people could have taken the sophists as being genuine mind coaches. They were helping people become more mentally agile, more philosophically Imaginative. Yes. yes, absolutely, and that that is the the very useful counterexample. I, I I'm trying to remember what dialogue that is, but uh, in it, Plato argues that uh, the doctor might know more about medicine, but as a so- I think the sophist says, um, but I could make you believe that he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so you should, you know, he can out. He can outdoctor the doctor in convincing people what medicine to take. Right. Um, but I, I don't know. There is a question that this piece raised for me that I would I would like to sure. to ask you two gentlemen. Um, as I've said, um, as as a 
a dramatic story, you know, uh, uh, what will happen next and, ooh, I really care about these people. And, you know, um, I, I think this is an incredibly weak piece. Um, as a philosophical, stimulating, um, provocative uh, engagement of my mind, I find this a spectacularly good piece. And, and to indicate that, I, you know, going back to looking backward, uh, in looking backward, I think everybody realizes it, that the romance part of it is just a flimsy excuse so that the narrative viewpoint can be toured around the future world and can say, oh, well, we have this in the future and we have that in the future and so on. I mean, it really is a crummy story. And you like if you like looking backward, you like it despite that. Mm. I'm saying that for me, E.M. Forster is so vivid in what he does philosophically and prosodically, that is his control of the language, is so good that I don't think that this is a bad piece just because the oh, the story... And it's is, so short. I mean, this is nothing compared to a novel. It's tiny. Exactly. And so my question is this. What does it mean to say, I read something and liked it? Is the experience of reading this piece and liking it in some significant way different from saying, I read, say, The City and the Stars, which is also about breaking out of a city with a total, you know, one guy with the imagination to break out of a city with a totalizing central computer and humanity can then go on. They've been waiting out there and he comes to join them. Right. Is it. But that's that's a that's a nifty story. I, I want to yeah. know if, if there's any significant difference between saying my experience of reading The City and the Stars, which has a parallel plot in many ways to to the machine stops is good. And my experience of reading The Machine Stops is good because let's face it. Even though it's a rousing story, terrific for 12-year-old boys, The City and the Stars doesn't hold a candle philosophically to the machine stops. Well, I don't think it's that bad. I actually did think of this story. Uh, I did think of The uh, the City and the Stars while reading this. But, uh, I yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Jesse Clark. They both give me ideas. <laughs> <laughs> But Clark is not asking you to question them. Clark, I think... Clark, well, he's showing us something. And yeah, Clark is just yeah, saying, Clark. you need to have imagination, you need to be able to think outside of what society tells you. I mean, he's he's got clear morals that you can draw and say, okay, if I now buy these things, I know what to do next. Forster does not. Forster says, yeah. if you understand that these things are true, you have a real bit of work ahead of you. Because figuring out how to apply them in life, that's tough. Yeah. This this does not answer questions as much as it raises them. And uh, oh, I, I like them both. I think they're both well worth reading. <laughs> I, I agree. And now you've made it possible for me to restate my question. Does the word reading in both of those assertions mean the same thing? Uh, good question. Mr. Moon, what's your answer? <laughs> Well, they're both reading, but um, 
they're both working towards different different aims to provoke different reactions in different ways. Um, I mean, my experience of reading The Machine Stops, it's quite different from reading a lot of other kind of SF stuff, which is more focused, say, on the imagination or the adventure. Uh, with The Machine Stops, it's impossible, I think, for us to read it now and instantly not just go, my, my lord, this guy was ahead of his time, because so much of it rings true and seems relevant to where we're at. Um, mm. I, I like the fact that it's, we've called it fa- a fable and a parable and an allegory, but he doesn't draw a moral clearly to it. It is left to us to, to ponder some very deep questions. Um, and, you know, that's, that's perfectly valid. It's, to me, as a reader, it's more profound than, say, reading City in the Stars, which is more imagination and thrills. Not necessarily better or worse, it's just different. Um, but it's kind of, there's so we're, much we're in this very, story. Is a <laughs> we're, not there, we're not at the point in the City of the Stars. I mean, this, mm. I, I think that the reason, uh, I read this story a few years ago, and it didn't seem that interesting to me. And yet now, it's like, holy cow, this is much more interesting. <laughs> I, th- I think, you know, reading The City and the Stars at a certain age, at, at the time I first read it, that was very appropriate. And it'd probably still be good, but I don't think, until we are at the point where everybody, you know, Eric isn't thinking about uh, going to the doctor, but he's thinking of going to the downloader, where they're going to download a copy of his mind and put it on his his robot and have the robot live with his wife for a while and see, you know, and then remix that with Mr. Jim Moon. You know, that point, mm. then that's the city and the stars will be like the way this is. But I think there's something about the the point at which we are with our technology um, and the way they are in this story that makes it very, very powerful in, in a way that, I think the the Brave New World, you know, was sort of it was it sort of had a time in the between the 70s and the 90s, I would say, where you, it just seemed very relevant, you know, mm. with with test tube babies and with um, uh, the sort of the rise of uh, I don't want to say recreational drugs, but complementary drugs, mm-hmm. you know, drugs that uh, enhance your lifestyle or uh, put you up, put you down. I think there's something about it just being so relevant, and I think the city and the stars is a place where we're going. I think we're we're headed in that direction, and it will become again a big book. That's very interesting. I mean, I think it's impossible to uh, divorce yourself from a work and the context you read it in. Um, it's it's one of those meta areas I speculate a lot on at the minute um, in a way that is weirdly relevant to this story with these ideas of group recycling of knowledge and consensus reality because I see that a lot on the internet of the, a book or a movie or a TV show someone will oh it's that and then everyone starts repeating that often without thinking <laughs> and you get this received wisdom view of things um, where I find you know kind of as a critic 
that, you know, my context of what I saw or read previously or when I'm reading it or the mood I'm in does matter an awful lot to what I get out of or what I take from whatever it is. Um, I think that, you know, this story, I think, probably just very in the last few years has took on this whole new resonance, as you say, that if you're reading this in 1970, it would probably be dull and abstract, whereas reading it now, you can't help but seeing it as exciting and relevant. Mm-hmm. Eric? Um, I, I agree that uh, where we are when we first read something um, gives us special sensitivity and special insight and, and maybe special emotional connection. In the case of, of a, a book I read at 12, um, you know, it, it may mean that I have this wonderful affection for it. Um, I think in the specific case of The City and the Stars, um, having reread it again uh, a couple of times um, and, and its earlier version against the fall of night, um, it seems to me that it is a fundamentally adolescent work. <laughs> and, I better not go back and reread it then. <laughs> well, I, 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 that's not a bad thing. I mean, there are some works that are aimed at adolescence that are really crucial. I think that uh, Catcher in the Rye, for example, or To Kill a Mockingbird are are fundamentally adolescent works, and they have to do... space suit will travel. Okay, but they have to do with with certain passages in one's life, and they can be deeply important. But as a critique of society they typically don't wear well because adolescents aren't fully engaged in society. When I think of um, Little Brother by Cory Doctorow, um, it's, it's a wonderfully relevant piece right now. Um, and I really like the novel. Mm-hmm. But I think in 20 years, information technology will be sufficiently different that um, that aspect of the book won't carry us forward. And watching a 17-year-old in a relatively prim way coming to understand the possibilities of romantic love, um, that's interesting. and will be for 17-year-olds forever, but that won't be an issue for all of our society. We'll have to make an imaginative leap to understand why that book really functioned well. And I think with The Machine Stops, one of the reasons that it can continue for us is because Kuno and Vashti aren't locked in a transitional part of life. Vashti, you get the sense of her as a complete adult. And Kuno, despite being her son, you get the sense of as being a complete adult. And they are just two views of society in general. So I'm thinking people may still like the city and the stars and they may come to appreciate it in a new way, but I don't think it will have that same social resonance that say, Brave New World does. I mean, the end of Brave New World, when Savage hangs himself because he understands Shakespeare, you know, the conflict between being civilized and being outside of what society accepts and the idea that you can have an imaginative life that is soaring and that matters to you even if the rest of the world won't tolerate it, that's not something that is dependent only upon the adolescent period of one's life. Adolescents may be more likely to feel that than people later in life, 
But I think anyone who comes up with a new idea or wants to take a different view of what society has relegated to a different position is liable to understand that. And if it matters enough, it may seem more important to that person than life itself. In that sense, Brave New World, I think, is giving us something lasting. And I don't frankly see the happy ending of The City and the Stars giving us something lasting that way. Go read this story if you've not. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it'll provoke ideas that'll keep you busy for the next week. <laughs> At least. Um, I think it's, it, it, it is interesting that the Brave New World has the idea of the, um, the civilized society and the outer savage. Uh, where this, you have a hint of that, with the kind of the idea of Kuno wants to go out. Um, he wants to start a new order, almost, to re-engage with the natural world. Good stuff. Let's 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 call it an end because Mr. Uh, Mr. Eric S. Rabkin, sorry, Professor Eric S. Rabkin has to uh, has to vacate. Oh, Jesse, please, you can call me doctor. <laughs> <laughs> doctor Eric. So that, that, wait, that means Mr. Moon is the, is the scary one. <laughs> ah, yes, indeed. Mr. And Mr. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Good morning, Jesse. Did I misunderstand the message I saw that you wanted? What was the, what was said, the message? It said I'm on the phone call when status is... No, you're, it's a liar. Oh. See, the machine is lying to you. <laughs> I'll have to look that up on page... What was the number again? Uh, of the holy book? Yeah. yeah. Um. <laughs> I'm just joking. I actually looked up both of those page numbers to see what I could make of them. <laughs> uh, so how are you today? Oh, uh, pretty good. I just just got out of the cleaning device. The cleaning device? Oh, I see. <laughs> oh, now we're talking about Woody Allen, I think. <laughs>